Okay, so um, let's get started because we actually have a lot of content to go through and chances are I will not make it through everything. So I apologize and just please bear with me here. Um, just to give you a little bit of background about myself, uh, I am an occupational therapist by training. And so uh, most of my experience is in inpatient psychiatry, working um, in state hospitals and in um, acute, um, acute inpatient um, uh, settings in uh, traditional hospitals as well. So. Uh, just recently in the past, maybe five, six years, I've really gotten into the community um, and uh, trying to uh, adapt interventions for uh, enhancing living skills in, um, in the community. If you're not familiar with occupational therapists, basically what we focus on is enhancing living skills. Uh, I think the, uh, the term our uh, association uh, uh, uses to refer to us is uh, uh, skills for the job of living, which I think is an interesting way to put it. So with that, I will... Uh, Go ahead and begin. Um, the way we define health, at least uh, the way we're trying to increasingly uh, 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 persuade clinicians to think about health, is that it's not the absence of disease and illness, right? That's usually the way we have been um, uh, uh, educated and trained, because you think uh, what is poor health? Poor health is disease and illness, so we eradicate that, and then we have health. But actually, we're finding more and more um, through research um, and uh, through just like theoretical development, we're finding more and more that it really has to do with being able to do and be. Uh, so being able to be who you think is uh, somebody that you want to be and then being able to do meaningful activities that constitute a life of dignity. Um, and so basically the idea is that you, what you do creates health and therefore we should be focusing on what you do. Uh, because what good is it to be without illness or without disease if then you are not able to do anything meaningful? Um, so then we, we must consider something much bigger than just the absence of illness and disease, although that is a part of health, right? Uh, so, you know, this goes very well with the, uh, the recovery model um, that, that really pushes folks to, to think beyond uh, interventions that target symptoms and beyond just stabilizing symptoms, but really trying to help people thrive and flourish. And you do so by increasing their participation in meaningful activities. Uh, a lot of folks will, will step back, and this is totally normal because this is the way we've been trained. Uh, we'll step back and be like, look, we can't work on these things until someone's stable. They have such active symptoms that that's the primary barrier to their participation, which is a very reasonable uh, um, uh, interjection in response to this. What I would like you to start thinking is that participation itself is a stabilizing factor. If someone doesn't have something meaningful to shoot for, to, uh, to engage in, then a lot of the interventions we're trying to get folks to, uh, to improve in um, they will not do so because there's no motivation. There's nothing really, there's no reason to, to, um, to improve some of these living skills. I, I think one of the most obvious uh, examples of this is when we target things like uh, self-care with folks with serious mental illness, and then we only target the self-care piece. And if there's no reason for someone to, to engage in self-care, you know, simple things like uh, 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 taking a shower in the morning and uh, making your hair presentable and things like that, if there's no reason to do that, nothing to do that for, then why even bother with that self-care activity? So this is like what I mean by really enhancing or focusing on the participation piece here. Activities of daily living, they are super important. And obviously you're gonna hear an OT say this, right? Uh, because we focus on activities of daily living. But again, these are this is what life is all about. ADLs or activities of daily living are exactly what enables basic survival and our well-being. It's, it's how we, um, it supports our daily life. It is the means and ends to health. So what I mean is that you, you try to get healthy to perform these activities of daily living because that's what matters to you, the gardening, the cooking, the going out with folks. But those are also the things that promote your health, right? So it's this really this, this uh, intertwined, very deep relationship between participation and health here. Uh, 
ADLs are also how we meet uh, uh, demands in our lives. So that's uh, ADLs are, are, are necessary for us to do work, to manage our homes, to engage in our, in our social interactions. They're also how we engage in systems that are necessary for us, the healthcare piece, uh, how we engage in justice systems, how we engage in social, uh, any social uh, security that's out there uh, is through ADLs. Um, one thing that I think is very important for folks to realize as well is that all ADLs are meaningful in some way and that we have a tendency to take them for granted until they're gone. Perfect example is brushing your teeth, something that uh, we most likely, most of us take for granted um, and that you may even find as a nu nuisance in your life. You probably think it's just a mundane thing, but if you ever uh, have um, undergone any kind of illness or injury where you could no longer brush your teeth, you start realizing how significant these things are to you and how they are indicators. Like we have like culturally, these things are indicators for us that we are independent and that we uh, we're successful people, you know? Uh, so once you start losing those taken for granted activities that are indicators of independence and success, that stuff can start taking a toll on a person in many different ways. So ADLs are extremely important. Again, I'm very biased, of course. So all this is leading us to think about, uh, you know, leisure and community participation as a medical necessity. There's, there are increasing folks making this argument out here. Um, I really like this quote from RAP, um, that people don't need more referrals to uh, mental health services. They need referrals to life and community, right? Now, I think RAP was also writing this in a time where uh, uh, services were uh, not maybe quite as integrated in the community as they are nowadays. But, you know, the, the idea here being is that the services need to be referring folks to life and community, right? And that's where you guys come in. Um, Mark Salzer, who uh, is at Temple University, he, uh, he talks about it as the opportunity to live in the community, to be valued for your uniqueness and your ability like everyone else. And it's this, th this piece right here, this like belonging, this feeling valued piece that we often uh, don't take into account when we're working with folks with serious illness. Um, I've done this myself, but I've, over the years, I've, I've started to learn that uh, this idea of needing to be needed um, is a really important factor in anybody's life. I suspect that most of you are in this work, not for the money, right? We, we know very well that it's not for the money, but that because it, you're, it, there's something meaningful behind it uh, and, and it gives you value in your life. And, and so you, you, you inherently understand that at a very deep level, how important that sort of thing is. Now put yourself in the shoes of someone who has been a patient for their entire life. Because a lot of folks with serious mental illness, the second you get diagnosed, that becomes your primary role for the rest of your life. Um, not everybody, but a lot of folks. Um, and so if, you, if that is your primary role, then uh, you, you, you essentially are uh, told your whole life that you are a person who needs to be worked on, you're sort of broken, uh, and that you need to be changed uh, to, to be a, a normal person, whatever that means. Uh, so that continuous you know, message that a person gives throughout their life can have a tremendous impact on their well-being. And, um, and they're just not, and folks who, be, who are put in this situation have learned dependency and tend to not feel needed at all. So simple activities as like even opening a door for somebody could be, a, could be an interesting intervention um, with folks with um, serious mental illness. So as you, as you continue to embrace this idea, hopefully that community participation can be a medical necessity, start thinking about it. Like when we're doing meaningful ADLs, meaningful activities of daily living, that's how we build our competence. It's how we learn skills. Uh, it's how we learn to cope with challenge, right? So self-efficacy, being able to overcome challenges. Uh, it's how we experience our positive quality of life. It's how we experience a positive uh, self-identity. Um, feeling useful, experiencing mastery, 
a lot of these things are folks uh, are things that folks with serious mental illness uh, don't have opportunities uh, to to experience. It's not that they can't; it's just that these opportunities are not there. Um, this uh, this uh, the opportunity to thrive and flourish through social integration, through community integration, and through belonging. Again, remember that role as patient as opposed to a member of community. Uh, those are very different roles uh, for a person to occupy. Any of you have gone through. Um, uh, a, a significant health issue in your life and have been put in the role of patient, you can probably reflect on how uh, disempowering that is and how you're typically surrounded with a bunch of professionals who know a ton about your illness, who are not communicating it necessarily very well to you um, and um, not necessarily attuning to your needs. Uh, so just remember that if you're living with that experience your whole life, that it can really beat a person down. So when we're, we're, when we're thinking about this recovery approach, which I'm sure you all have heard of now, and thinking about participation as a me medical necess necessity, that shifts the folk from the traditional management of illness to promoting wellness, right? So what does that look like? Instead of focusing on stability, we're focusing on the future. Instead of focusing on compliance uh, for treatment, we're focusing on choice for treatment. Instead of controlling what a person does, it's a real authentic partnership and collaboration, which I know you're probably hearing a lot about. Uh, but that's actually a hard thing to do effectively. So it's one thing to say that we're, we're collaborating and we're engaging in authentic partnerships. It's another to actually do it. And a lot of times we don't have the tools or skills. We weren't trained well enough uh, to, to know how to do that effectively because it's really tricky. It's really hard to do. Um, so instead of focusing on a person's deficits, you focus on a person's strengths. And that's a really really big one. And we're going to spend some time on that later today and tomorrow uh, on what that means in terms of uh, assessment and intervention. This focus on strengths doesn't mean you're forgetting about a person's deficits or challenges, as I'd rather put it, or difficulties. It means that you're also making sure you focus on those strengths. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to really beat that point down a lot. Um, so <laughs> expect it. It goes from having low expectations saying that like we're just shooting for stability to high expectations. We're shooting for wellness. We're shooting for a meaningful life with dignity, uh, which, you know, helps go, uh, go against this learned helplessness. And it's really about this active participation to not be um, a dependent person. Uh, and then, you know, it's a shift from protecting a person from failure where you actually embrace risk. You do it in an intelligent way, right? And you problem solve and you, uh, you, uh, you assess risk and you come up with plans to cope with risk, but you don't avoid risk, right? You may have heard the, the, the lawnmower parenting style these days. Um, this is the new thing where our parents are trying to remove any kind of challenge from their children and only set them up for success, only success, but no challenge. Um, well, then you don't learn how, how to overcome challenge, right? So risk needs to be there. It just needs to be uh, undertaken in, in a um, supported way because there's this sort of false assumption that if someone is very stressed or dealing with a lot of anxiety, that you need to take away any uh, moment of stress or any moment of risk uh, to protect that person from exacerbation of symptoms, right? That makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, but it's actually a really bad thing to do if you go overboard because then you're preventing opportunities for work, for um, some of the wonderful social experiences that we have. Um, we engage in risks all the time, all the time. Uh, so it is a question of justice actually to allow um, uh, folks with serious mental illness to experience the same level of risk as we do. So again, stabilization is not the target for the intervention. It is quality of life. Um, and I would argue that um, you get stabilization through promotion of, of activities, meaningful activities of daily living. So just, you know, take a minute to think about yourself um, and what your favorite activities are and how they affect your, your health and well-being. And then think about what would happen if you could long, no longer do those things. 
you know, right now, given what we have been um, uh, experiencing with COVID-19, a lot of us actually immediately had to face this, a loss of a, a meaningful activity. Uh, just recently, I was giving this training to some folks in, uh, in North Carolina, and uh, some people had some really uh, powerful examples to share um, regarding what happened to them when they were no longer able to do their favorite things. So it would be terrific if somebody would be willing to speak up and, and, and share what they, um, uh, this experience. Uh, Stephanie, I can't see if anybody raises their hands or not, just given the way I have everything set up here. I can only see the chat and my PowerPoint. So if someone raises a hand, oh, somebody just chatted that uh, COVID-19 and seeing friends. Yes, huge, right? Something you think about seeing friends, you think about this as like something on the side that you do to, um, you know, as a bonus after you get the, the important things done. Now, when you've lost that opportunity to see your friends, you're probably starting to realize how meaningful and important those experiences were. It wasn't just about having a good time. When you're seeing your friends, uh, even if you're like doing a workout or uh, you're, you're, you know, you're going to have a beer or whatever, there's a lot of processing of your life that goes on with your friends. You know, you might have like an activity that you're doing, go and play a sport together, whatever, but all the stuff around that is what uh, creates the support of your life. And it, it gives you that meaning and it gives you a, uh, an opportunity to share things that are, that are difficult to problem solve. Also to give that to your friends to not only uh, be needed, uh, um, but also, I'm sorry, feeling needed and also um, uh, getting support from others. So like this reciprocal relationship, that's the kind of stuff that is done uh, through friendships and uh, some of these activities that we've lost. Um, so I only saw one response there, but that's okay. Uh, other things, uh, if you can think about uh, things that you do outside, some of you maybe uh, are, are not able to um, uh, interact with your coworkers as much uh, at work, and that can really uh, make yourself feel anxious. Um, here I see someone else responding. Uh, it increased your anxiety due to the shift in daily routines. Yep. Um, and not being able to see friends and getting out of the house has taken a toll on, on the mental health. Everybody's mental health, right? I th I, so, you know, in some ways, this horrible experience we're all going through, it's actually a, a really uh, good opportunity for us to reflect on um, how folks who go through serious disruptions in their lives, whether it be through physical or mental illness, or both and a lot of times, how that how disruptive that can be and how that can be a, a daily experience that somebody has to deal with the rest of their lives, not just what we're dealing with in this um, short amount of time. It doesn't seem short, does it? Um, yeah. Thank you, Barbara. I, I totally understand that one as well. Being able to leave your home and return without worry of getting others sick. There's a lot of just, there's a just underlay of anxiety that we're all dealing with these days. Um, so just remember, everybody's dealing with that piece, right? Okay. You may have heard about social determinants of health. This is just me further uh, uh, making the point that participation is directly related to health. This is, in the last decade, research on this has exploded and they have found they have been able to prove while controlling for everything that all these factors you see up here, I don't know if you can see my mouse, um, but uh, economic stability, all these things under here, you know, uh, you're, where you're living, your education, your food, your social context, and the healthcare system all directly affect your health outcomes, uh, your left expectancy, uh, your status, your functional limitations, et cetera. It seems logical, right? But here they proved it directly that your access to parks, your access to playgrounds, uh, your uh, access to, of course, education, uh, but even social integration and community engagement will are directly related to your health outcomes. So this is not just a theoretical thing we're talking about the sides. We have proven this. Um, and there's actually some interesting research out there that showed that the number uh, one determinant of your health 
and it's a very convincing study, uh, you will probably never guess it, it's your zip code. That's your number one determinant of health. So that has nothing to do with your DNA, has nothing to do with uh, you, know, uh, you uh, having certain capacities or not. It's literally being born in an environment that is, either, that is so impoverished where you are experiencing such negative determinants of health that you have poor health outcomes. Um, I, I should, you know, now that, that just popped in my head, I've done this training so many times, I've always forgotten to mention that study. I need to include it in these slides because it's a really powerful um, study. But you see this stuff right here is stuff that all of you are probably working on as well. When we get into the healthcare system, the more traditional uh, hospitals, uh, everything gets focused much more in this area and all these other very important uh, factors sort of fall by the wayside. And it's not until folks get out into the community that the, uh, you're really uh, addressing those other factors that are hugely important for health outcomes. So the work you do is tremendously important. Do not underestimate the impact that you can have and uh, also focusing on participation, these things like uh, the doing. The, the stuff that makes life worth living, the stuff that you look for uh, forward to yourself. Okay, I don't wanna get too caught up on this stuff. I could talk forever and I, I wanna make sure we get through our slides. So another thing to think about here, okay? So when folks get put into the mental health system, uh, I hate to say it, we, we have a system that's not the best, right? It's, a, it's broken, it's fragmented, uh, and folks often have learned dependency through it. Uh, and uh, the way that we, our system is built tends to put, make people miss opportunities to develop their skills. They tend to be put in situations where uh, uh, a lot of the uh, things that you need to do to leave an independent lifestyle are, are not even available. Uh, so just like anything else, I mean, if you think about skills, any skill like a muscle, right? The less you use it, you start getting atrophy it starts breaking down. Uh, so if, if you're never doing your laundry or never learned it, well, you, you're not, you're not going to be able to do that when you are discharged to the community or people are trying to put you in the community. So there's a, there's a lot of missed opportunity uh, just to even learn skills. And then there's also uh, uh, the lack of practice of skills. And so if you think about all that, uh, there's this uh, self-efficacy, uh, lack of self-efficacy that is developed. A person doesn't see themselves as an independently functioning person, um, and that can be uh, really challenging uh, in terms of someone feeling like they can live out in the community. That learned dependency is is really, really intense, um, and uh, you, I guess things need to be looked at as uh, accumulated disadvantage over the years. All those missed opportunities and all that uh, dependency, developed dependency, really puts a person in a position that is very difficult for them to uh, get out of. If I was giving grades, it'd be a, a home run. All right, so we know functioning is important. We know participation is important now. Okay, so that should be easy to do, right? No, it's not. It's extremely difficult. I'm sorry, uh, but there's no, uh, there's no magic bullet here. Uh, no one size fits all. Each situation is, is really, really different, as you probably know. Um, so we, we know that people are very different. So they have very different skills. They're born with different uh, capacities. Uh, and then they, their history and their environments either nurture or extinguish those capacities in different ways. So people are really, really, really different. Even like at a very basic sensory level, we don't hear things the same. We actually don't even see things the same. Um, and we're going to get into that more later because there's actually a lot of atypical sensory processing patterns uh, that neuroscience has found among adults with serious mental illness. And um, it has a really big impact in, uh, with learning and communication. I'm going to give you guys uh, the rundown on all that and give you some, um, some strategies to respond to it later. Uh, but so on top of that, then you just have different ways of doing things. We all do things differently. When I say doing laundry, we all sort of have an idea what that's like. It actually doesn't look anywhere alike from me to someone else, to someone else, to someone else. And then even on top of that, we live in such different environments that um, that messes everything else up too. So 
things are so different in every case that assessment of function is really about just getting to know a person's situation. And that can be challenging because a lot of our, uh, our health systems uh, really push us to uh, develop plans immediately because we're reimbursed, depending, I, I, I'm not exactly familiar with how your FSP uh, system works over there and the other systems you have in California, but you know, in North Carolina, it's just, we have uh, the same things with ACT teams. And there are um, markers that you have to hit at a certain time. There are plans that you have to develop by a certain time. And some of these uh, restrictions can make it difficult to actually get to know somebody and their situation prior to designing the goals and interventions that you need, right? So um, part of the environment that can be a challenge for you guys is, is the very systems in which you're working. So now I'm going to introduce the, this model, uh, the PEO model. And, and the reason we're going to be talking about this again is this is, I'm telling you, a really good way to look at participation and function. So if you look at it over here, um, this Venn diagram, okay, you're going to see the person here. Uh, in the middle, there's F or P, so participation or function, whatever you want to call it. I prefer participation, honestly. Uh, the environment and occupation. So in OT, occupation means a lot more than a job. Uh, it's really, it used to mean more than that. Now it only means job, but it's really anything you do to occupy your time that is meaningful. Uh, it, that includes activities of daily living. So brushing your teeth, taking a shower, cooking, um, which I guess is more of an instrumental activity of daily living. Those are more complicated. Uh, bill paying, uh, managing your home, um, just all, basically everything you do. Um, so it's important to look at participation or function as equally influenced by personal factors, environmental factors, and uh, activity or occupational factors. That's why this model is so good, because it reminds us that the person is not the sole source of any challenge, right? Um, and this goes right along with the recovery perspective and the social model of disability, which I'm not sure you've ever been introduced to, maybe and maybe not, but the social model of disability defines disability as environmentally produced. So the idea is, is that people there's not something wrong with a person, it's that the environment is a poor fit for the person, right? Uh, the social model of disability says that all of our environments were built with a, a very narrow view of what functioning looks like or what people are, and that uh, it's really only well done for a very narrow slice of people, and then the rest of uh, folks are actually not fitting in well into the environment in some way or in another. Again, these messages are so relevant right now. Um, and uh, so we need to be mindful of how important the environment is here. And you're going to see uh, later on why this is such an important thing. So why I personally like the PEO so much and I, the entirety of uh, the OT profession pretty much loves it because um, it came out of Canada, by the way. Um, it's because it's really a systematic way of looking at function. It, 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 there's nothing. It's not rocket science. It's not a complicated thing, but it's a habit of thinking that you need to get into because the way we're all trained, especially in the United States. And, you know, I love the United States and all, but uh, the way we're trained here is to think about people, like the individual over and beyond everything else. And like, because of all of our history, there's this idea that uh, you, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, manifest destiny, we can control our lives. Uh, it's just me, 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 me. Uh, but that's not the reality of the situation. Um, and uh, we're therefore uh, trained to only look at the person as the source of, 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 uh, of any deficit. And that's actually the hardest thing to change. People are the hardest thing to change. The environment, much easier to change, and the way things are done, much easier to change. So uh, we're trained to change the person so much, and yet that's the, the most difficult thing to do. We're rarely trained to look at the environment or the occupation, and those are the easiest to do. So again, it's, it, this is not rocket science. It's just getting used to uh, a culture shift in your thinking, which is actually really hard to do, which is why it's useful to have a model to structure that. So it helps you identify intervention targets beyond the person. 
we're, again, we're always trying to change the person. You can intervene in the environment. You change the environment to match the person's needs so much easier, or you change the way someone is doing anything. Um, so much easier than trying to change the person. Now, the thing about it, you know, I'm going to present a really simplistic way of how this is going to break down. But the reality of the situation is often you find uh, challenges in each one of those uh, factors. And so there are multiple intervention targets that you could do. So what's really helpful about the PEO is you can usually identify, you know, some interventions here, some interventions here, and some interventions here. Um, so we're going to go a little bit deeper into this. So it's all about the fit, right? It's all about the fit between the person's abilities the environment and the occupation. A good fit is good performance. So those circles really come in together. The bad fit leads to a bad performance. So think about the circles going apart. So we're gonna move on here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you exactly what those look like. Now this is like extreme, right? They're never like totally apart because I guess technically the person will be functioning, but I've taken the circle out just to really highlight the fact that here we're thinking about, okay, the person's the one that is uh, the primary source of the issue here. Uh, so they're out of the, the whole diagram piece. So an example of this is active psychosis. Maybe the person never learned how to do an activity or they may be experiencing some chronic health condition where they have low stamina. Okay, those are all personal factors, technically sort of within the person, I guess. Um, and the, those are the barriers to whatever you're trying to change. So that's really hard to do, okay? Uh, the intervention targets in this case, of course, are the personal factors. So you would engage in either skills training, uh, give the person medications perhaps to deal with the active psychosis, or in the case of low stamina, maybe teach them some energy conservation techniques. Uh, but again, as I'm emphasizing right here, I'm really trying to get you to realize that is the hardest thing to change. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute, why? Um, and the, the real answer is just because it's habits and routines, right? Okay, here's when the environment is the major issue. An example of an environmental barrier would be the sensory environment. So someone who has, uh, older adults especially, uh, but uh, someone who has like visual issues, glare can be really disruptive. So for those of you with perfect vision, that's probably not something you've experienced, but if you have issues with glare, um, it, I mean, you can't do anything in the environment when it's there. Uh, you literally cannot see what is going on. Uh, and so it, it can be so significant that if you're in someone's home and they have a counter uh, top that is happens to be uh, reflecting light in a way that may not bother you in, not, uh, in any way at all, but if this is an older adult or due to some reasons uh, associated with their medication, they're very sensitive to glare, that the just looking at the same spot you're looking at can be overwhelming. The person's not gonna wanna do it because it's just very uncomfortable. And then on top of this, the person, depending on who you're working with, may not have the insight or um, uh, may not have been, uh, it may not have been brought to their awareness that they have an issue with glare. They're just seeing something and be like, ah, I don't want to do this and may not be voicing it to you, you know? So there's, there, there, are, there are many ways that sensory environments can interfere with a person's function without any, uh, anyone necessarily being aware with it, of it. Sound is another big one. And I'm going to, uh, I'll explain why specifically with uh, folks with um, uh, uh, psychosis, but also bipolar disorders, um, there are uh, some uh, neuro, there are some sound uh, processes that are going, auditory processes that are going on um, in the brain that, that um, can be a major barrier. And of course, clutter or uh, missing objects can be uh, easy things in the environment to change. So your, your, your target here, your intervention target, if the environment is the, the main uh, uh, barrier is of course the environment. So you would modify the sensory environment, you know, remove glare, maybe remove the sound. Uh, if there's uh, clutter, you could organize uh, the environment. Um, if objects are missing, you just provide the equipment or move objects, uh, provide tools. Sounds a lot easier than changing the person, right? Um, that's why you, you really wanna start with environmental modifications if you can. Then there's the occupation, the activity. 
So an example of a barrier here is that the activity itself may have too many steps. Think about laundry and how people do it very differently. Um, my way of doing laundry it has minimal steps, but then uh, you know when I look at how my mother did laundry, there were many other steps in there, like separating uh, uh, you know different types of laundry from each other. Maybe I should be doing that, but I'm not. Um, that's a much more difficult step. So if you think about it, if you give that, um, uh, you can simplify the process of, uh, of doing your laundry significantly. Um, if you're not even thinking about it and you're trying to teach somebody to do laundry and you're imposing all these different uh, variables on the, uh, on the actual activity that you're doing so without even thinking about it because culturally that's just how you grew up, uh, that that may not be the best act way of, of teaching somebody to do something. Uh, so you want to make uh, activities uh, simple uh, without too much problem solving, for instance. So you could uh, simplify or structure the steps, maybe eliminate some of the uh, choices that need to happen during the occupation. And when I say that, it's not like to limit it to make a person's choice, not, uh, not make a person have choice, because obviously that's extremely important, is to make the problem solving not happen in that moment. So at, while you're doing the training, you figure out what the person's choice is, and then you systemize it. And then that way, every time they do it, they don't have to remake that choice again. Um, it just simplifies the, uh, the process of doing the occupation. Okay, don't hesitate, by the way. I'm, I realize I'm speaking a little fast here. Don't hesitate to uh, send questions, okay? Uh, there's no better way to learn than through uh, interactive dialogue. And so this kind of uh, training is really hard for me to do because I'm alone in a room. Okay, so the benefits uh, to using the PEO, again, why it's really important. It lines up perfectly with a recovery model. And since each situation is so unique, it really trains you to think about how dynamic those circles are uh, and how they change over time. It also uh, helps you avoid protocols, right? Protocols are great because they save us time. They're also horrible because they uh, eliminate any um, uh, ability to uh, adapt things to somebody uh, specifically, right? So everybody tends to fall into their favorite interventions. And I've done this myself and inpatient, you know, I would, I would, I would identify a need and then uh, sometimes I would find myself doing a very similar intervention with one person to the next because, well, it was just a lot easier and I didn't have time, right? Well, that's not a good thing to do. So shame on me and hopefully uh, you, you, you try not to do that so much because you really need to be thinking about each situation as a unique uh, human expression and that protocols uh, don't always honor that unique human, human expression. And so the PEO kind of helps you check yourself against doing that because we're, we're all, we're creatures of habit and we fall into these ruts and routines. Um, and I think the PO can help us get out of it. So again, like I'm saying right here, it guides your clinical reasoning. It really reminds you to look at the environment and the occupation. I'm going to say this a lot and I'm okay with doing that because according to research, uh, people only retain 10% of a talk. So I got to make sure that the 10% that you retain is the, the, the most important 10%. So I'm going to say a lot, repeat a lot of things over and over again, hoping that you catch it. And that's no offense to you. That's, that's research based by the way. <laughs> so, uh, one really other great benefit of the PEO is the fact that, uh, it's very easy to understand. I mean, I think, right. Uh, I hope you're, you're experiencing it that way. But it, in terms of uh, communicating to, st to other stakeholders, so other um, uh, caregivers, for instance, other service providers, people on your teams, uh, why you're doing things, how you're doing it, uh, it, it really breaks down a function and participation in a very uh, concrete way that you can display, uh, explain your decision-making process very clearly to someone. And that includes uh, with your clients when you're sitting down and you're, you're maybe uh, discussing how to enhance somebody's performance. Somebody wants to do something in their life. Uh, so they've identified the F or the P in the middle of the, the Venn diagram. And you can even present it to a person and, and talk about like, okay, well, what do we need to change? 
Um, someone just said, where did the PEO come from? It came from, uh, uh, it's in, from uh, Canada. The Canadians uh, are amazing in OT uh, in some ways, decades ahead of us. Um, so we're, we're, we're catching up with the Canadians. Uh, it came out in 1996, I think. Um, so yeah, <laughs> shame on us again. All right, let's see. See if you guys were listening. Tell me, so I think all you need to do uh, to answer this is you, you, you do A, B, or C. So what is, when you're thinking about participation and function, what is the hardest, usually, wow, and I misspelled that, use Sally, usually uh, the hardest factor to change. I need to make note to change that. All right. I was hoping that would happen. That's like, that's like such a softball, isn't it? Um, the reason I made you guys answer that though, this, the research shows, so this is for you, for your, your, your learning, uh, when you're training folks too, it's one thing to hear the information, it's another person thing for the person to have to integrate and then output that very same information. Um, it makes learning happen. So this, you know, low ball or softball that I gave you guys um, wasn't to check your understanding, it's really to enhance your learning. Okay, so think about that uh, when, you're, when you're with your clients too. Okay, now I'm gonna give you guys a challenge to re-emphasize how each the P, the E, and the O can be sources of, um, of your inability to function. So this one's a challenge and I get some really funny uh, answers on this one. So imagine that you just re uh, received an amputation uh, at your elbow of the dominant arm and try to operate your phone using only your elbow. Uh, to respond to the following poll. I'll let you guys open your text. Well, you can probably do it with your non-dominant hand, but actually try to type with your elbow um, and we'll get answers here. So try to answer the following or fill in the blank. That might be too hard, but either way, just type in the answer of what your favorite restaurant is. And I'm gonna do it too, just to show you that. That's about right. Not easy. It's a real thing that people have to deal with. So there are the issues the person, you would say, issues the person. Um, yeah, it was the t-shirt, someone saying their shirt's covering the elbow. These are all real things, right? Um, thank you for humoring me with all these awesome answers, by the way. Uh, it's a real thing. So what do you do in that case? You know, you can't change the person. Uh, you know, you can work on the prosthetics and so on and do that. Or you could just adapt, in this case, the environment and then start using dictation, right? Um, that would be, um, that would be a, a really uh, easy fix. So thank you for humoring me on that one. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed it too. Now, here's an example of how the environment... Uh, can be really difficult. Um, so follow the directions in the next box. You don't actually have to do this because we don't really have much time. I usually have much more time for this uh, training, by the way, it's usually two days long as opposed to two, two and a half hour days. So um, right here, the emphasis is, uh, all I'm asking you to do is just to tell me what your, uh, your favorite music artist is, but you probably can't read it, can you? Um, green on red, that contrast is notorious for being horrible in terms of uh, uh, our eyes being able to detect the contrast. Then you saw I used like really small font, tons of unnecessary words, and um, a kind of font that's actually difficult to read. But uh, ultimately, the end here was just me asking you, what's your favorite music artist? Uh, so you can really see how the way you package information here can totally affect whether you are able to uh, perform something very simple or not. So when you're thinking about uh, disseminating information to your clients, give us uh, some careful thought about how um, you're, you're disseminating that information. Again, we're going to go over some very concrete ways about um, very concrete uh, strategies about how to disseminate information and communication in very clear ways to avoid the, the kind of issue uh, I'm presenting right here. All right. Now that's in the environment, right? Because the occupation was easy. Just tell me what your favorite music artist was. And you guys were all very capable of doing it, but the environment was very poorly done. Here's an example of an occupational factor. 
Now, when we take we tell somebody, hey, let's make a paper airplane, that's super basic and so e super easy. But I'm sure uh, when you guys are looking at these two pictures, it's very easy to tell that one is much more difficult than the other, yet they're both paper airplanes, right? So uh, we need to be careful on how we, uh, how we define our activities. So here you see it's really easy to make a regular paper airplane. These are the same occupation, same activity, but here, much, much, much more difficult, right? I don't, I don't even think I could try doing this. And then on top of it, I guarantee you this guy's not going to fly at all. So uh, really carefully designing the occupation and making sure uh, that it's, of course, driven by your clients so that it's something that they really want to do, uh, but that it also uh, uh, that you're very sensitive to the process in, uh, in which it's taught or the process that it needs to go through um, is something very important. And another note here, look at how the instructions are right here. So here it's pretty logical, left to right, you know, because we're in a culture where we read left to right. So in some other cultures, this wouldn't be so good. But here it works. It just you, you kind of logically follow this line by line as you would read. This doesn't do it at all. This is awful. Look at it. It goes right and then it goes down left. It's like this weird little circular thing. And then, uh, well, you're supposed to be done, but then the, there's the finish. It doesn't make any sense. So presenting the information here is, 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 it's just very poorly done. So those are really things that we all need to think about when we're communicating with folks. All right. So we've talked about assessment. Oh, we're about to talk about assessment. Okay. So looking at the person, because we want to start with that piece. How do you assess the person? It's really, 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 really hard. People are very, very, very complicated. Um, simple process, such as brushing your teeth, involves like, it's literally a miracle, uh, all the things that come together in your body to produce such a simple movement. Okay, so of course your body structures uh, uh, have affect whether you can do something. And when I say that, I mean like whether you actually have hands or how they are, or you know whether you're, you have all your organisms um, uh, and, or not, right? It's, but also your body functions have a huge piece of this. So uh, your, your, your ability to move your joints, the stability of those joints, your, uh, your tone, your power with your, your, your muscles, your, the, the way you can actually uh, modulate your power. So like knowing when to squeeze, stop squeezing something as opposed to um, squeezing it just enough. Those are all really difficult uh, things. Uh, your ability to uh, uh, move across your midline, to use both your hands at once, uh, so many things come into your ability to function, including your, your, um, your uh, cardiovascular function, your digestive function. We're finding more and more on how like uh, uh, bacteria in your gut affects your mood and your ability to function itself. Uh, sleep is a, is a tremendous one here. Um, I know that the vast majority of the folks I work with, and uh, likely you as well, have very um, uh, difficult uh, issues with sleep. A lot of times uh, people are, are just not even getting close to what they need to. And we're finding out increasingly with research as well that sleep is just as important as exercise to the point where you shouldn't be getting up like super early to exercise because the sleep you're losing is also bad for your health. Like it's like this toss up. Um, we know sleep affects your uh, cognition uh, as well. So um, there's a lot that comes into a person's ability to do. And then you throw on all the skills, uh, the cognitive skills, emotional skills, all the stuff that people have learned over time. Um, so people are very complicated. And even uh, to make it further complicated, uh, we have habits, routines, and rituals. So habits are fantastic. You know, they're, uh, they save us so much time. They're unconscious behavior patterns. We learn them uh, just through doing the same kind of stuff in the same kind of environment over and over again. So it's, that's what is meant through context-dependent repetition. So habits are great because uh, when, we go, when you go into a new room, for instance, you don't have to look at a chair and think about what in the world is that. 
You don't have to think about how do I sit in that? Or if, if it's even for sitting, you have the habit of thought already. You already immediately understand that that is a chair, there's a table uh, and what you're supposed to do with that. Those are things that you have learned, they're habits of thinking. So it saves us a tremendous amount of time in the sense that it frees up our cognition to think about other things. So the, when we have really good habits and routines in place, that makes us super functional and it can really help us with um, health if they are healthy habits and routines. Flip side, of course, is because of their inertia, their staying power, if we have bad habits or bad routines, they're extremely hard to break because of their persistence. And so in a lot of ways, they're both the best thing for our function and the worst thing for our function. Uh, so they always compete with intentional action, right? I'm sure a lot of you have wanted to, uh, at some point, you know, uh, started a new exercise routine or started a diet. Those are the ones that, you know, tons of people try to integrate that are, uh, that are habits and routines that are really difficult to develop, right? You, can, you may have every good intention to do it, uh, but actually following through is really hard. Uh, the research shows that it takes an average of 66 consecutive reputations, so 66 days in a row of doing something the same way for you to develop a habit. That's just an average. So the more complicated habits, like an exercise routine, take a lot longer. The less um, uh, complicated habits, like you know, drinking a glass of water at a certain time of day, would take a little bit less than 66 uh, times. But if you think about that, 66 reps is a lot. And if you think about somebody who is um, having challenges uh, with disorganized thinking, maybe some medications that are clouding the thinking as well, um, it can take a lot to create some habits, um, particularly if they're more complicated. And, you know, time and time again, I've seen uh, clinicians, and I've done this myself, uh, try to uh, get a person to do something that is a, comp a complicated habit, like an exercise routine, for instance, and just not at all, not at all uh, succeed because of the fact that it was just a, too difficult of a habit. So we, the lesson learned there, for me at least, was to start with something that is much easier, low-hanging fruit, low and to create that habit first, and then to build off those habits and to like sort of scaffold up. And so the routines, you know, they're, uh, they're essentially just sequences of habits. And think about your morning routine and how important that is. We're about to talk about that in a minute. So I've sort of already summarized uh, this slide right here, um, including the diet and workout uh, <laughs> uh, example. Uh, but I, I think what what I really need to emphasize here is time and consistency is important. So, you know, as a clinician, if you're working with somebody working on a living skill or just trying to get into person to know a person better, if you're seeing them at the same time every day, every week, you're missing a lot about their function. Because if you think about yourself, uh, you tend to have periods throughout the day where you're just more there, you're more with it, you're more effective. I certainly, me, 100%, I'm way more effective in the morning than in the afternoons. This is the afternoon for me, by the way, so sorry. But uh, the mornings, I, I, I make sure, because I'm much more cognitively aware, I put all my heavy cognitive stuff in the mornings. And uh, the afternoon is for like just more of the, the easy stuff. So if someone was intervening with me, and I was, you know, struggling with disorganization, uh, struggling with meds that were clouding my uh, my ability to uh, think um, uh, in the, like really concretely and logically. Um, and you were trying to do interventions on something that I was struggling with in the afternoon all the time. I will be very unsuccessful as opposed to someone doing that in the morning. So that also goes, you know, not just for interventions, but it also goes with just getting to know somebody um, that you, you know. People have very different experiences throughout the day. So just make sure that uh, if you want to get to know your clients well, that you're, you're making sure you're seeing them at a different times of day throughout the week. Um, so yeah, right here at this last point, I'm talking about how if you try to do living skills intervention on an artificial time of day, um, that that can be 
weird too, because we are such con context dependent habit creatures that, you know, training somebody to cook, for instance, in the middle of the afternoon is probably not going to be as effective as doing it at a natural time when the person is naturally going to be cooking uh, and, you know, might be hungry because that, that's a, a, it's a major motivator there too, as opposed to just in the middle of the afternoon. Um, so yeah, considering the, uh, I guess the validity of the context in which you're doing an intervention is very important. So you need to think about the timing. So think about yourself again. This is something that uh, we would spend more time in when I was doing uh, these in-person trainings, but here, just consider your morning routine. Um, so go ahead and, you know, imagine what you do when you get up prior to COVID-19 uh, and what's your morning routine look like prior to uh, getting in the car and going to work. And I'll share mine with you uh, in a second. And then think about what happens when that morning, uh, that morning routine was disrupted and you still had to go. So I'll go ahead and tell you with mine. So I have uh, two, so I have twins and they're six years old and a dog that uh, is high needs. So our mornings are chaos and it is, uh, you know, trying to, it's like herding cats all morning. And so we've actually had to, my wife and I have actually had to have like a pretty strict routine that like, you know, this needs to happen, this needs to happen. And it's like this just really uh, very chaotic experience in the morning before we all pile in the car and leave. And so for me, what happens when something messes up in that morning routine, everything starts falling apart, right? And then you're like playing catch up and you're trying to reorganize things into your morning routine. And even if you're able to do that, a lot of times you're not, you still start the day in a very different mindset, in a very different, uh, there's just like a different feel uh, to, to, to what's going to be going on for the rest of your day. And um, usually when I get uh, folks to participate and, um, and uh, share uh, how this feels, everyone tells me uh, how it's just the rest of the day is not right. They're less effective um, and, uh, you know, just less tolerant of challenge. So our routines, you know, we really rely on them a lot. So feel free to add something in the chat if you, you share, um, if you experience similar things, but our routines are a thing, especially the morning ones are things that we rely on heavily. So the research shows though, that uh, a lot of folks with serious mental illness do not have routines. And so they don't have these these tools that we just deploy without thinking of, these tools that we use to scaffold our performance in a way that makes us do so much more than we could without them, uh, that in the absence of those routines that folks can be a little bit more lost. And also, if you think about it, routines, the beauty of it is like, each activity is sort of like a prompt for the next one because they, they just all flow together. So, you know, as you're doing one thing, you know to do the next, and you know to do the next. So it's like each act sequence in that routine is like reinforcing the doing of the other, um, activity. So like if someone doesn't have a routine, there's no prompt for all those activities to fall together. It's like each one has to have its own, uh, starting point, its own, um, uh, 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 you need to like have the motivation and the wherewithal to get up and do that one thing as opposed to starting one thing and then it flowing naturally. You see how different that can be? Um, it can be a major, major, major issue here. So developing healthy routines, um, is one of the, is a very hard thing to do with folks, but it can be a very important one, especially if they're working, right? Okay, moving on. The environment. How do we assess the environment? Seemingly very simple, yet again, way more complicated um, than you would think. The environment, so we're used to thinking about the probably the first two very much, you know, the environment, the natural environment includes the geographic terrain, plants, animals, things like that. Um, the built environment, so stairs, any signs up, 
furniture, objects, tools. We're usually very uh, familiar with thinking about that. We're usually not uh, so good at thinking about how the sensory qualities of those two natural and built environments, how the tactile, and I mean like the touch piece, the sounds, what you see, the smells, the tastes, the temperature, et cetera, uh, how those things can affect a person's participation. If you want to think about how this can interfere with your participation, uh, when's the last time any of you went into one of those candle stores in the uh, mall? It's, you know, to me, like those things, it's just like sensory overload when I go in there. The, the, the smells are so intense that I, I, I just can't do it. I have to walk away. Some people love it. Other people hate it. Um, that it's important to think about those things. Because you know, we know from neuroscience that these things uh, that folks have atypical sensory processes here, and they that folks can uh, have a harder time filtering through some of these uh, these the sensory input and have a hard time um, uh, ignoring some of this sensory input. So, if you experience something on a sensory like sensorially, right, in a way, like a smell from the Yankee Candle, for instance, where like it's just too much for you to do anything. Imagine how much harder that would be with somebody who has an atypical process that they are less able to filter out that smell than you are, and you are already having a hard time doing it. Don't worry, I'll give you guys more information on this uh, as time goes, because uh, it, it's a big one here. Uh, so of course, the social environment is a big piece of this. Um, what expectations folks have in the social environment and uh, just what personal relationships may be there. And then cultural stuff is 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 really important. Norms in activity participation. So this like socio-cultural stuff, you know, what what beliefs are uh, exist in customs uh, for, for appropriate behavior in certain environments. And these are things that are learned, you know, um, uh, that we learn, we sort of like, assimilate these things without really realizing it's happening. And then when we go somewhere that's different socio-culturally and it doesn't fit the way we learned, we experience sort of that, that like what we would call like a rich point or conflict. And you're like, oh, this place is different. And you experience it as being sort of wrong and weird, uh, but it really is just because your habits are not fitting very well in those, um, in those environments. Um, and of course, you know, things to consider uh, in terms of environment and context are the life stage, person's life stage, the time of day, history, even time of year, um, you know summer versus winter, uh, the weather, um, uh, whether you have any allergies or things like that, all these things can affect a person's participation without them necessarily realizing it. Um, and so these are things that need to be on your radar when you're thinking about uh, performance. Okay, so now take a minute and I want you guys to put this in the chat box, but just think about the current environment you're in right now. And what is a barrier to the current environment you're in right now to this learning activity? So I'll let, I'll let a couple answers come in and I'll tell you what the barriers are for me. Movement in the office, phones ringing, door opening and closing, huge barrier, no focus, right? Monday morning trash pickup. They're loud and sitting by the window. <laughs> yep. Yep. Huge barriers. Um, and auditorially, that's a big one. I'll go ahead and give you guys the, uh, one of the scoops uh, with folks with a, a serious uh, mental illness is that uh, you, it's difficult to filter out noises. So if you have a noise that's consistently coming, um, like the doors opening and closing, for instance, that uh, it can be much harder for you to filter those out if you have a, 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 um, a serious mental illness. Remember, these are typical things. Doesn't mean everyone has this experience, but it's very common. And uh, if you can't filter out things like little dings and uh, um, sounds like that, that it can be really overwhelming. Uh, not being face-to-face -face is hard. Virtual sessions can make it hard to pay attention. Yep. Also a household noise and the TV. Correct. Uh, for me, Glare from the computer, thank you. And the dog parking, yeah, mine too. 
for me, uh, this whole uh, virtual thing is 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 horrible for me because I can't see your faces really uh, because uh, I'm having to look at the PowerPoint and manage all this stuff and look at the chat as well. I can't give get the visual feedbacks like the nods or the you know the, even the grunts or whatever that people give you when you're giving a talk to to show that people are a paying attention and b like even understanding what you're saying. Um, so from my perspective, I, I get like no feedback here, and I feel like. Um, I don't know, I could be talking to a, a group of dogs and like no one, you know, it would just would be the same. I have no idea. So it's very frustrating for me. So um, thank you for uh, participating there. Uh, all right, now we're gonna go to the occupation. When you're thinking about what a person's doing and you're trying to assess it, you really need to think about the order of steps. And it's a good way to like break up the activity into three chunks, like sort of preparatory activities, the actual doing itself, and then um, the wrap up. I'm gonna use cooking as an example. Uh, because uh, just very often, this is a, an area where people talk about uh, wanting uh, interventions and tips. So it's one that I use a lot. Um, so if you think about it in terms of, of uh, cooking, you know, you, you, ha you have to gather tools and equipment. So whatever food items and actual tools that you're used to be cooking, like that's one aspect of it. So like all kinds of barriers can happen there uh, to, that would stop you even being able to cook. You know, when we, we think about cooking, we're like, oh, can the person actually cook a meal? But you, a lot of times we're thinking about all these other things that can happen before and after that are all part of the same occupation, right? If you really want to go like scope out, uh, what else is part of cooking? Well, being able to go buy the food, um, therefore having the money, you know what I mean? Like it can get really big, like the barriers can be pretty significant. So thinking about, you know, the preparatory steps, the gathering, the core steps of actually doing it. So in the case, actually doing the cooking and then the wrap up steps like the cleanup, the eating, uh, all that stuff, all that's part of this activity. So if you're trying to promote an activity, really think about like the bigger picture and like what's roped all into it. Um, then another thing we tend to not think about too is the, the rhythm of the actual activity. Like, so like the speed in which it happens, some activities, uh, are, the rhythm is just super important, especially with cooking, right? Because you, you, you know, you can't just like turn it up hotter to get the, 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 the dish to cook faster. It doesn't work that way. You actually have to respect the, the slow cooking and the rhythm piece of it. So calibrating a person's rhythm, um, on an activity is really important. So you have to consider, can it be interrupted? You know, like laundry could probably cooking, usually not. Um, and then do you need to like pay attention to the speed, like pouring liquids, for instance, like that's a hard one. Like some folks who, you know, have like control issues, motor control issues, and some neurological issues could just like keep pouring or like squeeze things too hard. Like there are a lot of areas where that can fall apart. So the, the rhythm is important. And if you need any uh, further evidence of how rhythm is important, just think about dancing, you know, like, and just how critical rhythm is there, you and another person and like your response to another person. Uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, and so that, I feel like that really highlights it. But same thing with any like sports, there's just so many activities where timing is key. And uh, we usually don't think about that when we break things down. So of course, objects are important, right? The tools and the equipment. So really critically thinking about what's involved and what is necessary versus unnecessary. So when we're talking about cooking again, cooking eggs, you probably have a very clear image of what that should look like in your mind, but it can look really differently, right? And you can actually use an, uh, a microwave to cook eggs very easily. And it's actually a very safe way of doing it. So, you know, that that's very different than doing it on the stove in terms of uh, what kind of um, uh, challenges are pre present and uh, what, a, what a person can do um, with uh, independently. Uh, so really thinking about what equipment is necessary and like being um, creative and what other types of things you could use is, is a really important aspect here. So of course, this isn't part of the environment as well, but some occupations actually require a person to be a part of it. So it's not just 
context, like something surrounding it, but the person actually needs to be part of it, which is why I have it listed here as well. Um, so if you are cooking for someone else, for instance, you know, that totally changes what you cook or, um, you know, the reason this is important for you guys to think about a lot is that you're part of that social piece, you know, so your presence, you are part of the E uh, when you're working with somebody. So you're an environmental factor that can be either a facilitator or barrier uh, to performance. A lot of times we're both. A lot of times we we're facilitators and barriers to performance um, despite our best intentions. So just be aware that you are part of that environment too. And then of course, you know, thinking uh, beyond contextual, but what is needed to perform the occupation in terms of space and setting? Do you need to be able to see what you're doing? Uh, does, uh, do you need to not be outside or you need to be outside? Like those kinds of things uh, must be uh, considered as well. Okay. And this is so broad, right? Because every occupation is so different. Every task is so different. So it can look uh, many different ways. Now, again, I, I won't make you guys answer this one, uh, but I'm gonna give you couple seconds to think about it and then we, we can walk through it and please feel free to participate. But uh, so just think about activity demands for taking trash, the trash out of your home. So just imagine your home, your trash and what you usually do. Take a minute to think about, you know, all the steps there. Um, mine's got, you know, a, a thing that you push on with your foot pops up and then I have to grab the sides and I have like the pulley. So I have to pull it out. Uh, and then I have to walk all the way outside to go to the trash can. Right. So take a minute to think about that and then think about how, you would be challenged to do this very simple activity if you had something like first rheumatoid arthritis. So if you look at the picture up at the right here, that's what that is. So you see a person's joints here, which are, uh, this is, these are healthy joints. Um, and here you have what arth uh, rheumatoid arthritis can do to your joints. And essentially what that translates to, which I talk about here, it's like you experience severe pain, particularly when holding, grasping things tightly, right? Uh, so that's like doing this is something that's very difficult for somebody with rheumatoid arthritis. The reason I'm bringing this up is that, as you know, the folks you're working with are disproportionately affected by chronic health conditions, including diabetes, uh, arthritis, and other things like that. So, uh, and cardiovascular disease. So these are issues that you guys come up, uh, come across a lot. So what do you do? You can't get rid of the arthritis. The hands are, are the way they are and the person's experiencing intense and pain. So you can't just wish the arthritis away. Uh, that's what most of the times will be like, oh, let's do meds, let's give the person like this, uh, this uh, splint or something like that. But you could also totally adapt the activity, right? In this case, you could, instead of waiting for the trash can to be completely full, you could use a smaller bag and maybe uh, um, do it every so often. You could maybe also change the type of bags you're using or the actual trash can you're using to not require the need to pinch like this, but you could even like do it so that there are loops on it and you could even just use your arm and uh, if, if it needs to be that drastic. So, you know, there are a lot of changes you can do to a simple activity like taking the trash out that could um, compensate for someone's pain with grasping. Now, to further complicate this thing is, you know, if you're working with somebody with serious mental illness who may or may not, but let's just pretend may not have very good insight into uh, uh, the, uh, their, um, their physical capacities or may not be very uh, communicative of how they're feeling, that you may need to do some digging to find out that it's the pain that's, that's affecting here. And so don't, don't assume too many things, right? Don't assume the person's just not motivated or the person um, doesn't know how to do something, but sometimes it could be like a physical factor, like a chronic health condition or a sensory thing that could be the source of the breakdown. All right, second example here is think about how taking your trash out in your home would be very different if you had very poor mobility. Think about, you know, um, 
maybe arthritis in the knees, uh, but you're maybe just much older and having a hard time. Uh, uh, you don't have a steady gait, and so you need um, uh, a walker. What do you do for your trash there, right? Mine, it wouldn't work at all, my situation. So what I would do in this case, you could think about it again, you're not gonna change the person. Uh, you can try do strengthening. You know, there are a lot of things you can do to try to get a person uh, have more steady gait, but a quick intervention you can do if you want immediate intervention would be, think about, look at this rollator right here, this special walker that you can, you can get, um, how you could maybe grab the trash and put it right on the seat. And so then there's no holding of the trash anymore. And, the, and you can use your walker just to go all the way around uh, back out to the trash. Again, in this situation, I would also recommend you do uh, the trash more often than not um, to make it smaller. These are all easier said than done, right? Because this stuff has to be adapted and everyone has their own issues and some people, these solutions wouldn't work with. I'm just giving you guys some pretty broad examples. Uh, and then the last one, disorganized thinking and poor sequencing. This is, uh, we see this a lot as well. You know, a lot of times you'll see all of this in one. Um, what do you do there? So the physical issue is not there at all. It's, it's just a procedural thing. So you might have an issue with somebody knowing when to do it, uh, actually instigating the activity and then uh, following through on the directions, right? So the supports you could do there would be, you know, to structure the activity, maybe provide a schedule, provide some steps, some kind of habit training to get the person to follow some steps uh, uh, um, in the same way every time, consistency is key, remember? Uh, but that would be one way to, um, to address this issue. All right. I'm gonna keep moving though, uh, to make sure we have time for everything. So again, please don't hesitate to ask questions in the chat box. I'm more than happy to chat. All right. All right, we're gonna talk about really assessment here and I'm gonna harp on strengths, okay? This is the thing that we keep getting told to do and that we're, we know it's important. It's really hard to do, right? Like what, how do we actually do this? So the first point right here, just remember, I was trained this way, and even though I had a pretty progressive education in OT, most professionals think about the pathology-based model. I mean, that's just the way our system's set up. That's the way our culture set up. We look at what's wrong. Uh, it's like a mechanic. The car's broken. You go in, you fix the part, and then the, the person car is okay. Obviously, it's much more sophisticated than that. But that's how we tend to look at things. There's something wrong. Let's fix it, and then the person's okay. So that's the pathology-based model. The problem with that is that, of course, we focus only on deficits, so we ignore strengths a lot of times or just don't really rope them into the intervention like needs to happen. But for the person receiving the intervention, like the narrative, think about the narrative they're getting their whole life as, as in this role of patient. Focus on deficits, focus on problems, failures. Uh, there's this expert focus where uh, the, the healthcare profession or the interventionist is like the specialist and they know everything and they come in to fix you and you're the one with the thing wrong with you. Uh, if that message, if it's being drilled into you your whole life, uh, you know, you're probably not going to have very strong self-efficacy. You're probably not going to feel very good about yourself. Um, but that is the major model right now. And even though we have this recovery strength-based model that everyone keeps talking about now in mental health, it's still not the norm. And even though a lot of folks are accepting it, it's really, we're not doing a good job in general on training folks on how to implement it very well. And I'm not saying that you, you guys aren't doing this, right? I'm sure you're doing a lot of this. The, the thing is, is just to remember to be systematic about it and to not let those old habits that we have creep back in right? Because we all have, remember, we all have these bad habits that we, we were ingrained in us. Uh, whether we like it or not, if you were raised in this culture, this individualism has been drilled into your thinking. Um, and so you have to keep checking yourself and remembering uh, to, uh, to, that, you, that these things are working against you and that you need to retrain your thinking to emphasize strengths. So 
when we talk about the strengths-based approach, a lot of people push back because they're like, look, these people, a lot of these folks have a lot of issues and uh, need help and they need support. That's not what, uh, it, the strengths-based approach is not saying that people don't need support. What it's, it's, so it's not about ignoring challenges. What it is, is about making sure that you are systematically integrating strengths in assessment and intervention. It really helps your relationship with, and rapport with your clients if you really do this a lot because you're changing the narrative uh, from, from what's wrong to here's the hope. Here's something you're good at. How can we build off of that? Um, so, you know, it, it helps reduce that dependency. It's not going to happen like that, though, because remember, habits, routines are so difficult to change that a person has been literally brainwashed to be more dependent. And even though lately, and you probably have been doing this ever since you started, you know, this whole person-centered approach, we do this a lot. It really needs to be a person-driven approach, not just person-centered approach. And we don't know how to do that because it's really hard. Um, so just making sure that you're, you're consistently challenging yourself and making more person driven as opposed to person centered. Um, that's what we're talking about here. Um, so we're really about trying to change people's narratives about themselves. So how do you do it? Well, you start with what is working. You don't focus on what, what the person needs to do. You know, like I need to work on this skill with this person. It's more about like, okay, what is this person doing? Well, what, what foundation, if you're thinking about building, literally building, what foundation do I have? What strengths exist there? Because if you're not capitalizing on that foundation, you're trying to start from zero, you're wasting your time and the person's time. You're not capitalizing on so much that is already there that you could use, right? So it's, it's about building on existing skills. Don't reinvent the wheel, right? Um, and if something is working, don't change it, right? Just because it's different than the way you do things. That's an act of cultural imperialism. And I, I will reintroduce that term later. Um, fancy term for a very important concept. Okay, so examples of strengths, because I feel like we need to talk about this. Um, remember, first of all, regardless, everybody has strengths. I don't care what you think about somebody. Um, there, there's a strength in there somewhere. And I can think of a few people uh, that are in the news all the time that are hard to think about that. Maybe we could find one somewhere. Everybody has strengths. It's true. So pay attention to them. We're often, uh, you know, uh, thinking only about it in terms of resources and supports, what a person has around them, like social people, but people have cognitive skills. People have interests and interests are really important here. Those are strengths. That's the reason interests are strengths is because it's, it's a person's engagement. It's what involves them in the world. It, it brings them to life. It draws them out and that's a strength. So you, if you find those, you capitalize on that. Um, I'm going to give you a quick example of, uh, of a way we used interests in, as a strength in intervention, and it worked. When I was an inpatient, I had an OT consult uh, for uh, a gentleman who was an older adult who was um, uh, soiling himself every night uh, because he wasn't remembering to go to the bathroom. And, you know, we started putting up reminders and we put the reminders up in very strategic places that we know his eyes were actually going to go to. So we wanted to put reminders, you know, where uh, handles were and things like that, like in his door. Um, but that wasn't really working. Uh, this guy was a huge Clemson fan. I mean, he loved Clemson. That color was over all his stuff. So what, I, what we did was we created these visual reminders that then had Clemson stuff all over them. And we used uh, uh, you know, uh, the football helmets because he liked the football, all that kind of stuff. And what that did was it, it was an interest. It was a strength. It drew him out. It drew his eyes to the prompt, which then said, Oh, remember to use the bathroom because he had a sensory thing going on. And then he would, because his sensory system wouldn't tell him to use the bathroom. He had to have a reminder. And, and that was the pathway to get him to do that. So people have physical capabilities, their strengths, their social skills. You know, some folks are really uh, social and, and, and like fun to talk to. Capitalize on those things. 
Um, anything a person is doing well is something that you need to celebrate, bring the person's attention to, um, not like in a pedantic way, you know, but like to remind them that these are things that are important and that they can do. Remember, you're trying to change the narrative. Just some, uh, some basics on the research. It, it, it definitely shows fewer hospitalizations, greater competence in ADLs, better work outcomes, more engagement in activities, social activities, more money, uh, financial stability, and fewer problems with mood and thinking. Right? And, and this is, uh, I should have put the citation there, but this is research uh, uh, that uses strengths-based practice, practice that uh, results in these outcomes. And it makes sense, right? If, you, if you're changing that narrative where a person's not feeling so down on themselves and feeling more capable, that all these things would be um, uh, re resulting from this feeling of greater self-efficacy, I can overcome challenge. Uh, so the way to do it, of course, be goal-oriented, but making sure that it's client-driven, not centered. Um, Centered is basic and important, but it needs to be client-driven. Uh, making sure that you're systematically assessing this, okay? So it's not just um, uh, uh, filling in, uh, like you might have a sheet that your institution gives you, you might have like a little blurb at the end that says strengths, and you write them down. That's great. It, it, it's about taking that and forefronting it, systematically assessing it and forefronting and making sure that it's always there. Um, believing that everyone has the resources in their environments, of course, um, I've already addressed this point about making sure that it's systematically addressed in assessment and intervention. So making sure it's part of your habit um, and uh, you know, making sure that your relationship is hope inducing as opposed to uh, uh, the opposite. So focusing on success, focusing on confidence. Uh, somebody put it really well it's, uh, to me is be a hope dealer, not a hope stealer, right? So you want to come into a person's situation and you don't want to frame the narrative around uh, uh, what's wrong with you to steal that hope. Um, by the way, I didn't come up with that. I can't take credit for that. Uh, but um, somebody said they loved it. But it's, it's true. Think about it. You, you want to come in and be that person of hope. So your rapport is huge here. Your relationship building is a tremendously important of this piece. Um, be a hope dealer, not a hope stealer. Now, easier said than done because we're all slammed. We all have so much to do. And strengths-based approach takes a while. And, you know, we got to get in and out to go to our next client. And, uh, you know, you know, this person needs to work on uh, this particular living skill. So let's get down to business. Let's get in there and like focus on that, uh, that living skill. And in doing so, you may be missing the opportunities to be the hope dealer. And you may be just only focusing on the deficits, even though you're probably really uh, helping the person out and focusing on a living skill that in your rush, you may have omitted some very important things that needed to happen around being that hope dealer, right? Uh, I, I know everyone's slammed because I, I know how these processes work in the, in the, in the clinic and in the community. Uh, despite your best intentions, the system itself makes these things hard to do. Um, so it, it, it really, um, it takes a lot of effort to, to do this stuff until the system catches up. This takes a lot of effort, but it is still possible. Okay, so the system doesn't make it impossible. It makes it more difficult. It's still possible. And don't underestimate how important these things can be for the folks you work with. Keep putting yourself in their shoes. Anton, we had a great question come through from Carmen about um, whether or not it would be easier to focus on one oriented goal or on many. You mean out of time? So yeah, uh, I, I would, um, I, it depends on the person. I would say focus on one goal. Keep things simple. Keep things, uh, you want people to achieve as much as possible and to feel success. So my, uh, and I'll, I'm going to say this later. Uh, in fact, it's on the slide, actually. What is feasible? What's the low hanging fruit? Like what is the most meaningful and also easy to accept? Because most chances, um, most times, at least my experience and everyone I've talked to, 
if you do a proper assessment, you're going to find a billion different types of intervention targets, and you'll probably find a bunch that are meaningful and important to the person, right? And so those are all good person-driven goals, potential intervention targets. So among that list, then I like really focus down and think about um, someone raised their hand, but let me finish this point. Focus down on like all of those set of goals that match, you know, that are important, that are worthwhile, that the person likes. Um, what are the easiest ones then? That's what I would focus on, the low-hanging fruit. Remember, you want to set the person up for success uh, and you want them to, to, to experience um, a meaningful change. Uh, and so start with the easy ones. It's going to help your rapport too with the person. All right. So Savannah, can we get Savannah to either say something or write? There you are. Hey. Um, so I was just thinking like on the last slide about, you know, I think that when we come into situations like as um, providers, um, we can kind of see like, okay, I can see where you need a lot of help in this area. And like, as you're talking about OT, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, it's just like ADLs and things like that. Um, and I think that a lot of times we also hear clients talk about their life goals. Um, but sometimes, and maybe this is just me being a little cynical, but like you can see a lot of barriers in the way of that. Like, I think that that's, it's great to have big goals. Like I want to, you know, audition for American Idol or I want to be a superstar, yeah. right? But you don't have housing. So um, I'm curious what your feedback would be on that in regards to like strengths-based and, you know, supporting like big lofty goals, but also doing these, you know, daily supports of maintaining safety and just basic needs, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. It's a great question and something that I have dealt with plenty, right? Uh, I'm sure all of you deal with this, right? I can't tell you how many folks uh, the goal was to become um, you know, basically the next Kanye West, right? Like that goal comes out all the time. Um, so my, the way I would approach it, this is just me personally, right? I'm not saying that this is like the best way to approach it. The way I would approach it is, um, first of all, you validate, of course, you honor the goal. It's not, it's not a bad goal to have but you, uh, you, you start contextualizing how difficult that goal is to achieve. So you don't say you can't get there. You just say you need to achieve some other goals in the way to get to that goal and you problem solve with the person. Okay. So what do you think we need to do to get there? And then you start identifying some, some other goals underneath it. So the interest and strength is the desire to achieve something great in a particular area. And then you take that and then you use it to, to try to identify some steps in between uh, that you can hopefully move the person towards. Uh, and it, again, this is where collaboration is so important, right? Uh, where uh, the person has to have buy-in because they're, if they're not interested in working in some of these more basic boring ADLs, um, and they don't see the relevance, then um, yeah, you need to try to link it as much, hook it onto that interest as much as possible to, to build up. Easier said than done, of course, uh, but whatever you do, don't uh, say no, that's no, you're not gonna achieve that because then you're, you're compromising your rapport. Um, but I also think, you know, it's irresponsible just to be like, oh, of course, let's, uh, let's, let's start working on that album, you know? Like that's not gonna work either. Um, like maybe, you know, you could get the person to start working on writing some stuff. So we'll pretend it's like the, the becoming a Kanye West. They could, they could do that on the side, but then you start working on some tangible goals that move you towards that, like getting a job for now, because you need some money now to be able to submit that, you know, that, that, uh, that sample to whatever uh, label, like that kind of stuff. Um, that would be a way to start scaffolding it up. I know that these things are easier said than done. Okay. It's a, uh, this is really hard work, uh, which is why there's a lot of burnout. 
and why I'm in forever admiration of folks who are in this business. And I love working in this business because like the people you work with typically are awesome and have great values because typically, uh, because you're not in it for the money. We all know that. So uh, thank you for your, your, your question and your focus too. All right, moving on. Um, please don't hesitate to ask more questions because I guarantee you, you weren't the only one having that question. This was designed for community, uh, intensive community uh, mental health teams to uh, engage in sort of like a structured conversation with uh, their clients. So the idea is not to like sit down pencil paper assessment style and to like fill e out each one of these things because as you can see, it's 17 pages. Um, so you can't do that in one sitting. Uh, it'd be horrible for you and the client. It would ruin your rapport. What it is to do is it's, it's to sort of structure your, your thinking. Uh, ideally, it'd be awesome. It's, it's more like a training tool, actually. I think it's probably a better way to do it or just to keep track of what you don't know about somebody. Um, but if anyone has an interest in, in this tool, just um, uh, send along a request and we'll make sure you get uh, 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 a sample of it. Again, it's not meant to be filled out all at once and it's not meant to be filled out as like a paper pencil assessment. It's more as a reminder for um, asking questions that are relevant uh, to a person. Okay, uh, so okay, moving on on that because I don't want to spend too much time on that. We're running out of time. When you're doing cell uh, uh, assessment, here's like the, 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 the thing that makes things difficult all the time, right? Are we relying on self-report or are we gonna do observation? From an OT's perspective, we would love to do observation because there's so much that goes into every little functional moment, right? Every performance of any activity, but that's not feasible, right? You can't do that. You can't sit there and observe somebody doing everything all the time. So you have to rely on self-report. So you have to rely on self-report with a grain of salt. How many times have you asked somebody, can you do some, something, something? And the person's like, oh yeah, it's no problem. I got that down. And then you like cooking for instance. Yeah, I can cook for myself. And then you find out that they've never cooked. Stuff like that happens all the time. So um, you really need to uh, rely on observation as much as possible uh, and take the self-report piece with a grain of salt. So I think my advice right here is that take advantage of every single moment as a moment of assessment. Anytime you're doing an intervention, anytime you meet with somebody, it's, it's, it's a moment for you to do uh, a really structured observation of what they're doing because you can get really clues, some really good cues on what a person can do with their hands, with their feet. Uh, like their functional, like uh, physical function, but then also like their, their problem solving abilities just by observing simple things. Uh, so just make sure you always keep that uh, assessment hat on and that you're always a detective and you're always thinking about um, uh, where can I see things uh, in a person's performance that are both strengths, remember strengths, and also um, uh, issues that may uh, interfere with uh, performance. And we are having these conversations with folks. Remember, you don't want things to be clinical as little as possible, right? Clinical is like, a, it's like a bad word uh, in this environment because don't forget what a lot of folks that you're working with have gone through in their lives. Um, any of you who have worked in inpatient have seen this. Uh, anyone who's been uh, in an inpatient hospital against their will, it is a traumatic experience, very much a traumatic experience. The whole process of, 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 of actually ending up in inpatient, uh, a lot of times you're brought um, after like a significant life event uh, where bridges have been burned, so you're, you're feeling horrible already, and then uh, a lot of times, okay, uh, you're not necessarily treated the best uh, as you're brought into the hospital. A lot of times it's through law enforcement, and then you're searched, you're, you're, everything's taken away from you, you're probably, you know, feeling really anxious, uh, and then, you know, you have a slew of healthcare professionals, each that has to do an assessment within 24 hours, according to their system. So basically you have tons of people you've never met in your life coming in, asking the same questions over and over to you, uh, very personal questions. 
And if you've never been diagnosed with a mental illness before, you're seeing yourself among uh, uh, peers who may be a more or less psychotic, and then you start associating themselves with folks, uh, it can be super traumatic, right? So the term clinical can be a very negative term and it can be associated with um, uh, uh, the trauma that people experience. So you don't wanna make things feel that way. So when you're doing assessments or when you're trying to find, um, you know, working on finding intervention targets with people, try to not make it feel like this bottom picture right here, you know, and try to make it more feel like this. So here, you know, you look at it, she's got her pen and paper, she's staring her down, it's across the table. It doesn't feel warm here. I mean, I know they're smiling and also that affects it too, but they're sitting by, by side by side. That's the key I wanted you guys to see here. They're sitting side by side, sharing in an activity. They're doing it together. Here, she is assessing her, she's doing onto her and she's responding back. This is something that they're working on together. And that's what it needs to feel like. Um, there's also this, uh, a lot of talk nowadays about doing walking interviews or task interviews. So basically engaging the person in something meaningful and using that as an opportunity to, to, to explore uh, a person's interests and needs. Um, that is good, but there's a caveat to that. So be aware of the fact that dual tasking can affect uh, uh, performance. So when a person is doing too much at once that they may not be able to do uh, everything very well. Um, and, but that aside, the process of walking, for instance, with somebody or even driving uh, with them, really, there's a ton of research behind this, like leads to a lot of disclosure and, um, and it just it's a more comfortable environment for sharing things and it doesn't feel as oppressive and like intense and, and clinical. If you think about it, when do you share all these things with your, with your friends and your, um, and your social environment? You don't set up like opportunities, uh, well, sometimes, but usually you don't sit there and say, call somebody and say, I need a meeting to talk about said issue. A lot of times you're, you're engaging in a meaningful activity with your social uh, environment, your friends or your family or whatever. And it's through that engagement that things come up and that issues get processed, right? A lot of times that's how these things happen. So if you think about it, if you uh, are a person with a very narrow social environment, very narrow cultural surrounding, um, social cultural surrounding, uh, not many opportunities to interact in meaningful uh, uh, activities with other people that you also don't have meaningful opportunities to share and to uh, process uh, things about your life, right? Uh, it's how it naturally occurs for most of us. So trying to mimic that in your, um, your, uh, your engagements with your, with your clients uh, can be very effective. Uh, yes, being careful about uh, identifying the right intervention target. So of course, you know, you're gonna find a lot. You wanna focus on what's feasible. What's the low hanging fruit? Make sure that you're talking to people about what they think they can easily achieve. Uh, and of course, you know, it needs to be uh, something meaningful that will lead to su uh, sustainable change. However, be careful with cultural imperialism. This is the term that I was talking about before. This is actually identified as one of the five faces of oppression, according to a, a, um, a well-known political scientist um, who wrote in the 90s. Cultural imperialism is when you basically impose your way of being and your way of doing on another group. Sound familiar? Um, it happens all the time. And the folks that we work with actually are even more vulnerable to this kind of cultural imperialism than a lot of other folks. Uh, if you look at um, those of you involved in doing interventions, like going into clients' homes, uh, maybe working on hygiene or um, how they're uh, keeping their apartment clean, um, you know, that is like an area that is ripe for cultural imperialism. Some of us are much cleaner than others, right? 
when Gwen said, so I'm, I was born in France. I'm from a different country. I have a very different relationship with, um, with all this uh, than a lot of Americans. In my whole upbringing, uh, it was just very strange to see people here love their hygiene. And that's a good thing. But you have to remember that hygiene is only related to health up to a certain degree. And then after that, there's all this sociocultural stuff after, right? And a lot of times when we go into people's homes, first of all, let's acknowledge the fact that folks with serious mental illness have lost all the rights and that you know, we can just get into their homes and tell them what to do and tell them that their houses are nasty, but you don't get to come in my home and do that. And yet my home uh, sometimes would likely not pass inspection. And then I would get kicked out of housing and this, that, and the other. I don't have that oppression, but a lot that is happening to a lot of your clients. And it's like, you know, you may be doing this without realizing it. Okay. And you may be reacting to, you know, the way you've been trained by your parents um, uh, on how to clean a place. You may be actually trying to get your client to clean the place in the way that was culturally acceptable for your family. Uh, and that being way too much and way beyond what is actually acceptable. So I once knew this OT, okay, who was, um, she was very hippie uh, and, uh, you know, didn't want to, to hurt any, um, anything. And she had an ant problem. Okay. So the way she solved her ant problem, she took a jar of peanut butter, undid the jar, put it in the corner of her home and the ants went there. So she directed the ants to the peanut butter and didn't have any other problems. That would never fly in a, a home inspection, right? Um, and, and we wouldn't allow it as, uh, as interventionist, yet she didn't have that, uh, that oppression. She was able to function and uh, have a full-time job and do perfectly fine uh, and is, was able to have that low hygiene, right? So like, it's, it's, it's just be very aware of this tendency that we have your general understanding of the way of anything is done. Your general understanding of an activity is based on how you, you learned how to do it. Your past experiences, your culture, sociocultural origins. And we're all very different. That's the beauty of the world is that we're all so different. We all do things so differently. So let's not assume that it, let's accept that and not assume that uh, everyone needs to do things the same way we do. Right. Um, so making sure that when you're doing your activity analysis, that you don't fall into the cultural imperialism of uh, your general understanding of how something is done, but that you're very sensitive to the fact that it may need to be done in a very different way. And that it takes a lot of skill to elicit this from somebody again, who's been beat down their whole life and told that they, uh, that they are, um, that they're broken and that they uh, have too many deficits that you may really need to have some skill to elicit those preferences and those needs and those desires to make it a culturally relevant, socioculturally relevant activity and to not be an imperialist yourself. Um, I, I, you know, I don't care who you are and how, um, how uh, open you are and how um, hard you try to do this. The reason we fall into these these tendencies to be cultural imperialists is, is because of habits and routine. Remember, it's not your fault all the time. The habits and routines are guiding your actions a lot of time. You just need to keep checking yourself and being like, wait, that's a bad habit. I don't like that. That's not who, who I want to be and check that habit, right? How relevant is this these days with the, all the implicit bias stuff going on where people don't realize that they're, they're, they're doing racist things? Like a lot of it is because of these habits that people have that they need to break and they don't even realize they're doing it. So like take that understanding now that's super relevant and apply it to like all areas of your doing. Um, habits, they are the, what was it? I think William James called it the fly, the flywheel of society. It keeps uh, society going um, in some ways better than others. All right, now I'm gonna talk about performance analysis real quick. So how do we like really get down to the nitty gritty of, of what it looks like when you put all these pieces together in a situation and analyze all of it at once? So here comes the PEO again. It is that reminder that we need to be systematic in thinking about how the person molds with the environment, but also how the person's molding with the activity demands, how the activity demands are fitting with the environment and how they all three come together. 
This is where the PEO is good because it reminds you to look at all those combinations, right? So remember, it's a breakdown in performance, it's a breakdown in the fits here. So look at all of them when you're analyzing what somebody's doing. Um, and that also means that when you, any change happens in one of these area, that it, areas, it will likely cause a change in the rest. So moving to a new environment, a lot of our folks end up having to go from place to place. Uh, folks who are homeless don't even have like a, sometimes don't even have a secure place to be in. Um, that changes in environment will necessarily lead to the changes in this fit and therefore changes in performance. So that should clue you into that when a, a person does, has a major environmental change in their lives, if they are able to achieve stable housing at some point, that is a major moment that you can capitalize on an intervention to try to install new habits and routines. Because uh, like the, 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 that whole situation has changed. The dynamicism between the environment, occupation, and person has changed such that you can really uh, take advantage of it in that moment. So here we have another tool that uh, we developed. Um, again, this is a training tool. And it's not something I would expect anybody to, to fill out. We're not trying to give people more paperwork here, but this is just a, out of request for folks. This is a, a training tool. Um, oh, we have until 3 p.m. I'm sorry. I just saw. I thought this was until 2.30. Very good. So we'll have some more time for questions. So um, right here, I'm happy to send this to anybody, okay? Just remember that it's not meant to be uh, incorporated as like an actual uh, uh, form that you will fill out because I know you guys likely have just endless forms and goals that you have to fill out, uh, person-centered plans, this, that, and the other. This is really a training tool just to get you to thinking about the things that you need to be looking at, okay? So like if you were to use this, uh, the expectation would be use it a few times and then try to do it only in your mind, right? So when, you're, when you start these things, let's just imagine you've identified an intervention target, you've identified a task that you're actually gonna intervene on. This is the process you should probably be going through, something similar to this. Uh, so what is the meaning? And you have to look at the cultural, the gender-related piece, age-related piece. Because if you weren't um, super successful at eliciting the person's participation in that moment, if you weren't, uh, 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 if you did what most folks have to do because we're, we're slammed with time that you, when you develop the goals, you kind of just go into a person's room and then you ask, uh, you know, what are your goals? The person's blindsided and has no idea uh, what goals to say. So they just kind of come up with something in the moment uh, that sounds good that you may not have identified the right goal, right? So maybe if that happened, you're already somewhere where you don't need to be right now addressing a, uh, an activity um, that, is, um, that, is, uh, that is necessary. So you may want to make sure that this question is answered well before you start. So why is it worth targeting? What's the outcome? Like, what are we actually shooting for here? So again, when you, whose priority is this? If you're looking at self-care or hygiene thing, is it, is, it, uh, is it because the housing person told you that this, the, the house needs to be uh, 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 in a certain state for the person to keep their housing? Or is it the person themselves that really wants their, their, their home to be in a better state and they're having trouble with it? Like making sure that the, the functional health outcomes that you're targeting are, um, are things that that the person wants and not things that are being put on them and they're sort of being pressured to say is a goal of theirs. And if I came up to ask all of you is like, what's, what's your five year, what's your five year plan? What's your five year uh, goal plan? Like, well, what do you want to be in five years? Because people have asked me that all the time in my career. Like, I don't know. I have no idea. And like a lot of people are like that. Some people have the plan, but a lot of people don't. And you know, a lot of our, uh, the way we do our interventions, you go ahead and ask that question, blindside the person. So you may have already identified an intervention target that's not worthwhile. 
So all this helps with, you know, the motivation. Um, a little note on motivation, by the way, in my experience in clinical practice, in my experience is that people often default to saying people aren't motivated when that's not really what's going on. Okay. I, I've heard it time and time and time again. So-and-so is not motivated. This is why they're not doing the activity. Sometimes it might be a motivation issue, but it could be because there's something occurring during that activity that is so nauseous and so traumatic and so difficult to go beyond that. That's what's um, affecting the motivation. It's not simply the person just not wanting to do it. I can't tell you how many times I've had referrals where people would tell me that and it wouldn't pan out that way. I'll give you an example. Um, when I was working, uh, uh, this is only a few years ago, still working in inpatient psych, I got a referral for a guy um, who wasn't showering at all. Like he just, you know, he had long hair and you can tell he had not taken a bath or shower in months because you've seen it, you know, like the hair is really like greasy, very, very greasy, you know, strong body odor. And uh, he was refusing to shower. And of course, what was the, uh, the assessment? It was, it was low motivation. So I went and, um, and sat down with the, the person. And for the assessment, I just listened and I didn't ask questions. So I was trying to build the rapport, make sure that the person knew I was there for them and that I wasn't there to extract information. So we, we, I was actually, I just sat there and listened, which by the way, many, 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 many people in inpatient have thanked me for just sitting and listening. And I know we don't all have the time for it, but that was, that's a testimony to the fact that it never happens that when I would do it, that people would immediately say, thank you just for listening. Uh, Cause people are often cut off. So in listening to this gentleman right here, uh, I forgot exactly how the conversation went, but in listening, I found out that actually he had been sexually abused in the shower. And that's why he didn't want to take a shower because he was scared. No one had even taken the time just to sit down and explore that option. They had just told him to take a shower. He hadn't done it. They had seen, you know, his ability to move and his ability to process and assume he's got all the functional capacities to take a shower. So just because he has all the functional capacities, he wasn't doing it. He's not motivated. What a jerk. You know, like that's kind of the conclusion people were having. And uh, here I found out that, no, it was actually a super traumatic experience. And all I had to do, because he wasn't like forthcoming and telling it, all I had to do was sit and listen. And then all I had to do was sit right outside of his shower with the door open. And then he took a shower. Boom, done. Super easy intervention. All it took was just listening and not assuming that it was a motivation issue. So, you know, those kinds of things, be careful with assumptions. Um, you know, in, in, in people in inpatient tend to get jaded as well, uh, because you tend to see people uh, at their sickest all the time. So you, I've seen a lot of clinicians uh, who underestimate a person's capacities when they are discharged because they've seen them in a, in a state where it was hard for them to do, but then they have no idea what the person really can do in the community. And um, those kind of biases translate a lot of times into the community, particularly they get disseminated in reports and then people underestimate a person's capacities outside. Uh, it's just, it's like this, this terrible spiral. So. As you're uh, developing this, um, as you're trying to understand the activity and you're doing the analysis, you've asked these questions about what's the meaning, the importance, what are the outcomes, are we doing it? Uh, has the person done it before? Have, uh, how often? Uh, is it significant to them or someone else? Uh, um, and this motivation piece, like if you, once you've done all that, then you start collecting more information. Uh, where is it happening? What tools are used? Anything else that you, uh, you can see? Uh, throughout your observation, when you're actually watching a person doing it, you want to pay a lot of attention to their attention to the task, okay? Because, because of the sensory stuff that's going on, and I'm going to introduce that much more uh, uh, specifically uh, tomorrow, or if we have time today, I'll, I'll give you a, a rundown on some of the sensory stuff. But um, 
folks have a lot of difficulty attending to tasks. And so it's not necessarily their inability to perform a task. It's perhaps the fact that something else is going on that is the, that is affecting their ability to perform a task. So making sure that, you know, a, a person is, is not distracted by something else and attending to the task that you're trying to get them to do is, is a major thing to, to consider, right? Um, of course, uh, the mental status, their sensory needs, which we'll talk about again, and a uh, person's communication skills are important. Okay, now, so you observe it, and then you would uh, fill out these kind of questions. Think about what steps from the step-by-step -step analysis, what steps did the person uh, perform independently? And then you think again about the P, the E, and the O. Here, I just put activity for, because uh, this wasn't for OTs, this was for um, other folks. So we, we don't always use the word occupation. But uh, what, what, what personal levels, what environmental fa uh, level, uh, factors and activity factors supported their ability? And then also, of course, which ones were barriers? Because you want to know whatever was supporting the performance, you want to make sure that that stays and that you continue uh, to have those supports in place. Um, and then, uh, of course, you want to address the barriers. OK? Um, so as you're doing this, of course, never forget medication side effects. Uh, and chronic health conditions are often uh, major barriers to the performance of a living skill. And a lot of folks, um, typically uh, folks in behavioral health don't have uh, a lot of training in um, physical health because of our, you know, for some reason we've wanted to split physical and mental health for, uh, for so long and it just doesn't make sense. But now we're finally going back to integrated healthcare and, and knowing that those two things come together. And the reason that's been such a problem is that the folks in behavioral health typically have zero training in physical health stuff. Uh, and that makes no sense because again, this population is overrepresented in chronic health conditions. So that training should be there. Um, so just making sure that you, you have the habit of thinking um, that chronic health uh, issues can, uh, can be prevalent here. Um, a lot of times, this has happened uh, uh, among OTs as well, because we are trained as integrated healthcare professionals. A lot of times OT in behavioral health would be like the first profession to notice someone has like a vision issue or the first time to notice that uh, someone has like a, a new, uh, on, uh, like a, a new onset of a, health, a chronic health condition, um, just because of the lens of being attuned to those things, because that has a significant effect on your ability to do anything. The medication as well, right? There's a reason why a lot of folks don't like their meds and it's because they'll report things like it makes them feel like they're outside of their body. They feel worse on their meds than not on the meds. Uh, so just making sure that these conversations are there. Whoops. Sorry about that. Uh, related to the medication, because that could be, um, that could be your primary barrier for somebody performing an activity. You know, uh, I've gotten consults before. Um, this was not a pretty consult, but it was a, it was about a person who was having uh, severe bathroom issues and, um, was very, uh, was very reluctant to wipe himself and was using the shower to do it. And so like, it was just a very big issue and he had a very loose stool all the time. And it was like a mess that people just didn't know how to deal with. And we figured out that the medications, so the, the, the intervention target was improve person self care. The actual intervention that worked was modify the medications. So the person didn't have bad bowel issues such that the problem no longer existed. You see what I mean? So like the intervention was totally different that we didn't target the person, we targeted the environment there. And it was the medication change that solved the ballot issue, which then solved uh, the, um, uh, the need to, to, to go into the shower and make this huge mess in the bathroom. I hope that came across all right. I feel like I didn't explain that very well. Okay, and then finally, uh, another thing uh, in this situation that you have to consider, the population's aging. 
call it the graying of America. Um, it's, you know, it's, the whole West is aging uh, such that uh, it, you're going to increasingly see uh, folks um, uh, working with folks with serious mental illness who, uh, who are aging. And uh, there's a lot going on there in terms of sensory loss, loss of stamina, loss of mobility, and cognitive issues that you need to be aware of as well. Okay, moving on. This last form is all about... Can I ask Sorry. another question? Yes. Um, I think you're absolutely right that like specializing in mental health, we do sometimes have a big gap of knowledge. How would you suggest, like that probably wouldn't have been my top thought of like other oh, medication is causing this issue. So how would you suggest to kind of have like a check and balance for thinking about that for yourself, where that might be a blind spot for us to thinking about chronic conditions? So some are, you know, obvious, but with things like that, where you need to think a little bit more outside the box. Does that make sense? So, no, totally. It does. And um, look, uh, be compassionate of yourself as well. I mean, uh, the clinicians that were fantastic in working with this person, uh, they're great, by the way, they call in all the time to us to do consults and they needed like outside people who weren't even there to even come up with this idea. So it's not like that we have all the answers. It's just, we had enough brains together to come up with the idea. So um, I think what the, the important lesson is here is just to realize that we all have tons of blind spots here and to keep um, your detective hat on and to keep asking questions. Um, you're not going to have all the answers to everything. You're never going to be able to figure everything out that goes into a person's life because it's so complicated. Um, but I guess it's just accepting that we have blind spots to keep that detective hat, to keep exploring different ideas of, of things that affect a person's um, uh, participation. So keep thinking about that PEO, what's in their environment, and the medications being a big piece of any kind of um, intervention. Uh, it's like the, 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 the histories out there, I mean, the, the, you know, medications have done a great job of reducing positive symptoms, but they have done nothing uh, to do the rest, you know, and the rest is what, if you define health, it doesn't address a lot of the, the health stuff. In fact, it does the opposite. And a lot of times the medications have a negative effect on the doing. So I would always think about medications as a piece of this. I'm not at all trying to advocate an anti-psychiatry uh, movement, uh, but that, uh, um, you know, I think that uh, it's, uh, it's important to consider the potential negative impacts of medication and for that always to be on the forefront. So I didn't give you a good answer. It's, it's, it's really just be aware that we all have blind spots all the time. Give yourself the self-compassion to know that it's okay that you don't know all these things. I think you just have to keep fostering that curiosity and, and, and thinking, you know, and keep talking to other people about things, especially if you run into a rut with somebody. Um, yeah, there's, there, there's no like easy solution to any of this, right? Um, and you can certainly always contact us with a consult if you want. If we, we have a grant in right now, and if we get it, we'll, uh, we'll be will be available for consults uh, across the nation. So hopefully we'll get it. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, I think I missed a comment about literacy. Stephanie, did you say something? Uh, literacy is also often an issue, yes. And so that's actually an important point, especially uh, with the, the stuff we're gonna talk about tomorrow in terms of developing um, instructions and, um, and, uh, and like uh, visual supports on, yeah, never assume uh, literacy um, is there. And uh, I'll show you some things about how to use uh, images and, uh, and pictures and things like that to, to, to get at some of this stuff. We're actually going to look a lot at, uh, again, with cooking, we're going to look at a lot of instructions on the back of, uh, of bags, frozen bags, 
and we're going to analyze uh, what's a good way to give the instructions versus not and what you can do to adapt it. So because I, I think all that that'll really like highlight some of these um, these lessons we're talking about. Thank you for those questions. That's great. I'm going to skim a couple of the other ones. Uh, basic anatomy. Yeah, someone's uh, recommending basic anatomy physiology class. You know, you really can learn a lot with that stuff. That's just a lot to ask uh, folks to do, right? But uh, yes, that is tremendously helpful if you're able to do that. I can't tell you uh, how much my understanding of function changed after understanding how the body works. Just understanding how muscles work and bone, like how they attach to bones and all. Like, it, Stephanie, I see you laughing, but like, it, 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 it's amazing how it expands your minds and understanding function. So, you know, it's a great suggestion if you're able to do it. Um, maybe you can have some continuing getting in there somewhere. But again, have self-compassion. You're never gonna know everything. No one is. Just do your best, right? Um, all right, so when, when you're doing, after you've done this analysis, you've looked at all these factors, what's a support, what's a barrier potentially, then you, you can get to the hypothesis generation piece. So like, what do I target? And you need to be critical here. All too often, we've skipped all the rest and we've jumped right here and we haven't even thought about it. We just go ahead and intervene. We haven't done the analysis and then we don't do the critical piece when we have a target. And it's like, why, what, why really do I think that this person can't perform this activity? What's the evidence? What, can, what, what did I see? What do I know that is actual the barrier here? Or am I just assuming something based on my cultural understandings? Is it an act of cultural imperialism? Just assuming that I've seen tons of people have this problem. This is usually what it is. You know, make sure you check your habits of, uh, all the time. Make sure you check your assumptions all the time on what it could be. Uh, so a lot of this is trial and error. You know, you might have to modify things. Uh, you might decide to do an intervention on cooking. You might decide to uh, make it an environmental intervention. You're doing the environmental intervention and then you realize it's actually, uh, the invention needs to be an occupation intervention. You need to change how the activity is done. Um, and a lot of times it's actually both. You know what I mean? You usually have to modify the task and the environment at the same time. Again, I'll give you guys some practical, very concrete examples of that tomorrow. Um, Cause I'm sure you, you, that's what you guys want, right? Um, okay, so what's the evidence? What did you observe? And then critically think, Please keep checking yourself. Okay, here are the potential ways to intervene in this. These might work. Make sure you ask yourself, at the person I can do this, but at the environment I can do this, and at the activity level I can do this. Be systematic. What can I do at each one of these levels? I'm telling you, it will, it will save you a lot of time. You won't get stuck in the person rut, uh, which is our culture here in the United States. Uh, it's all about the individual, okay? We need to shed that, and it's not easy. So uh, making sure you, you, you check potential interventions for each of those, and then you actually make a plan and, um, and you accept the fact that you could be wrong and it's trial and error. You're always an assessment. Things don't stay the same and people's capacities change over time. That's what makes things very complicated on top of it. So you can't think that um, you've done an assessment a while ago, you've been working with this person for a couple of years and that they're not gonna change. We all change. None of us are getting younger. You might have a new illness. You, uh, it might be an accident. There could be a seasonal change in the environment. Um, your, your occupations themselves might change. Uh, think about uh, the explosion of tech we've had in the past couple of years. You know, like so the the fundamental way we do things has changed because of iPhones, or I mean, just smartphones, not iPhones, but like smartphones in general. So um, things are always changing. And that makes it really difficult to, to keep up with the times, right? Um, because you may have uh, resolved a situation with somebody and then their environment or uh, the task demands change such that they're no longer able to perform that activity anymore, which is why you always have to be an assessment. Keep your assessment hat on. All right, moving on. 
Well, we're actually on the last side here. And I apologize because in my mind, I had it, we were stopping 30 minutes earlier. So I, I think all, what I might do is after doing this slide, I'm going to give you guys like a brief rundown on the sensory thing and we can revisit it tomorrow because uh, I think this is something that you guys need to hear a lot. Okay. So first of all, just to summarize what we've learned today and what's important. Okay. Participation, functional independence, whatever you want to call it, participation, I prefer. It's not just a bonus. It's not just something we do after things are well. It should be the major part of our intervention. Okay. It is important. It's complicated. It's not something to be done after stabilization has been achieved. It is something to be done to promote stabilization. And I know, again, you're, you're putting people uh, in risks. You're, 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 uh, you're adding stress to a person's life uh, by, by doing some of this, but that matters. They need those things. Uh, people need this stuff. We just finished um, a study on inpatient about um, doing uh, an analysis of a, uh, of, um, of a person's uh, daily activities. And then they would like actually go back and figure out how each activity uh, they related to it and how it made them feel. And interestingly enough, I found, uh, we found, it was me and this other therapist, we found that uh, a lot of folks were not used to thinking about what they would do. And they, in doing so, didn't realize that some of the activities they thought they hated were actually important for them, even though they caused them a little stress. So one of the most uh, salient ones, this article should be coming out in a month, by the way, FYI, AJOT, American Journal of Occupational Therapy. Uh, it says that the person said, uh, in relation to social interaction, this person hated being social, always avoided it. And that was probably part of the reason they ended up in the hospital. But the social experiences they were having on inpatient, when they were reflecting back on it, realized that, yeah, in the moment it was stressful. But after, there were so many benefits that he experienced emotionally that he actually realized, when I get out, I need to, he literally said this, when I get out, I need to spend more time socializing with others. Even though he had previously related to it as a negative, um, uh, a negative experience. So uh, participation here for him previously, social participation had been labeled as negative and, and something that would uh, raise risk for, you know, exacerbation of symptoms. But in the end, actually, he realized that it was quite the opposite. Momentarily, it was more risky and, um, and stressful, but uh, over 24 hours, it was actually experienced as a very positive thing. Um, I don't know, that's pretty important stuff. And actually what's interesting about that study, uh, which further supports the need to engage in a, a comprehensive assessment, like I mentioned earlier, related to the profile of participation, is that folks kept saying things like, I never took the time to reflect on my routine of engagement and I didn't realize how important a routine was. I need to develop a routine. These are all things that came out in the study. Um, so that's really powerful, right? It's uh, this basic stuff that, you know, we may reflect on, uh, or maybe not. Some of us maybe never reflect on, on what we're doing and how it affects our life. But taking the time to, uh, to critically analyze with someone that you're working with what they're doing and how it affects their, their, their well-being and health um, can be actually really powerful to provide the insight. It takes time, though, right? That's the challenge. These things take time. And I know your institutions or your systems are probably pressuring you to do these things quicker than you need to be. Um, so, um, you just gotta, gotta keep fighting the good fight. Um, so no task is simple. Everything's really complicated and I'm not saying that to depress you, but I'm saying that to, to, for you yourself to give yourself a break and to realize that there are many different, uh, interventions that you can do in many, uh, different types of part pieces of the puzzle that you can target. So nothing is simple. A lot of things affect, uh, any performance. And, um, remember that successful function is the good fit between the PEO. We'll go over this again tomorrow and that your intervention is going to assess each one. So we have about uh, what? 
23 minutes. So I think it's a good time for me to introduce this sensory concept to you guys. This thing is huge. So this is something that we, uh, in case you didn't know, there's a 17 year, per the National Institute of Health, there's a 17 year lag between discovery and implementation in, in, in clinical practice, all right? That's ridiculous, but that's the way the system works. It's taking forever for things to translate. So what I'm talking to you right now is stuff that's happened within the last 10, 15 years, max 20. So it's not surprising it hasn't uh, been disseminated yet, uh, but it's hugely important uh, because you'll see why. Okay, so we have, but okay. Can you guys see this little arc right here? Not very well though, right? Okay, so this arc right here is what your brain does when you hear a sound the first time. It shoots up and comes back down which is typical. It tells you, here's a new sound. You should pay attention to this. So when I do something like knock here or do this over and over go, the first time you hear the knock, it shoots up like this. But the second time it goes down way down to here, way down. Can you see how much lower that is, right? You, well, you know why it does that? It's because as I keep knocking, you can tune out the knock and you can listen to what I'm saying. So it's super important. In any busy environment, any social environment, uh, you're getting bombarded with all kinds of information. So the first time you hear it, boom, it goes up. The second time you hear it goes down. This allows you to tune things out and to focus on what's meaningful in your environment. Folks with serious mental illness, so that, that's an 80 to 20, uh, an 80 to 90 percent reduction actually in the in the um, in the amplitude of the the brain wave. Probably I didn't draw it very well. Folks with serious mental illness, we found, and this is like you know they tested this. It's not due to meds. It's trait. It's part of the uh, uh, the illness. You could even argue that it might be um, a major risk factor of it, uh, but that folks with serious mental illness, it shows that the second time they hear it, it only goes down by 10 to 20% instead of 80%. So basically, every time they hear that sound, it's almost like the first time. So can you imagine being in a super, super busy environment with all these sounds coming in and it all sounds like it's the same sound the first time? That's a major issue for participation and function, right? Something that we often don't consider. Uh, the message really uh, got, uh, got hammered home when I was, um, I was giving this talk to uh, uh, an MCO, managed care organization, and like they had their folks there and they had some peer support specialists there. And um, one of the, uh, the peer support specialists came up to me after and she was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea that this, this was going on. And uh, it explains why when I was at work, my coworkers' phones kept dinging and making these noises and it, it would just really make me anxious and, and annoyed. And, and I would, you know, get into arguments with my coworkers about this ding really bothering me. And they kept minimizing it and being like, Oh, get over it. It's just a little thing. You're being, you know, you're just being, um, uh, you know, uh, annoying with this one little thing. You're, you're just overthinking it. And like she had internalized like, Oh, you know, this is, am I really an annoying person like this? Like I really shouldn't worry about this. When she had heard that lesson, it, it, like, it was like an epiphany in her. And she came to me after. And she was like, I had no idea that this was going on. Now I understand that, 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 uh, that like, this is normal for me to experience it this way. And like, I don't know, just the, you sh I wish you could have seen her face. Like realizing that it was normal for her to experience that, that it was okay for her to experience this. And that she, she now had a reason to not feel shamed by it. I don't know. It was really, really powerful. Um, but I think uh, this lesson with this particular auditory thing um, is really important because when, when you're working with folks who might have these issues that you really need to be careful on what other uh, kinds of information are flying around, what kind of other sensory information is going around, because that, that can really impact your ability to communicate with somebody. And I'll go through very practical stuff uh, tomorrow about it, but uh, that's just one of the auditory things. There are a lot more. Stephanie, you have something to say? 
Antoine, there, there was a really interesting comment that and question that came through in the chat. So I think with this, this stimuli that you're showing, it's kind of this external auditory stimuli uh, or stimulus. But Herman is, is asking, um, is this why some of the clients sometimes hear voices in the head or is that not related? Like, so kind of that well, so, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no. I mean, like that's, you know, that's a, it's a fantastic question because like immediately that's what I thought uh, when I heard it as well. Um, it makes a lot of sense. We don't have evidence for that. Um, what's really interesting, though, is that there are a bunch of auditory processes like this. Uh, this is not the only one that are slightly different. And it makes sense that your brain would try to make sense of these issues somehow. Like, it's, it's not far-fetched to think that it's directly related to um, some of the hallucinations folks will experience. Um, side note on the, the content of those hallucinatory experiences, there's evidence out there, there's research out there that shows it's, it's, it's culturally specific. They've done studies between uh, folks in the United States, Ghana and India, where they uh, looked at the content of uh, people's hallucinations and found out that lo and behold, we did great. Uh, ours were of course way more negative and persecutory than folks in India and Ghana. In fact, in some countries, um, it's even seen as a positive thing. And uh, so the hallucinations um, were experienced um, as like a power as opposed to uh, something negative, right? Um, that's really interesting to me. But um, another, uh, there's another uh, auditory thing, similar, I'm not gonna bore you with the brainwave because uh, it doesn't look as good when I do that, but there's another one that uh, prevents a lot of folks from detecting changes in a sound. So if you have a repeated like tone or uh, auditory stimulus that's coming in, detecting a change in that, stimulus. So if I'm doing the knocking, okay, but detecting a change in the knock, like me going harder or softer, that that is being missed too. So you're like, okay, well, what does that mean? It's actually really important because it explains why people have trouble with effective prosody, which is another fancy way of saying just understanding tone in somebody's voice. So long story short, this, the, this other auditory thing I'm talking about, it's called mismatch negativity. Uh, basically what it means is, um, as I continue talking and you're hearing the tone of my voice, that uh, someone with serious mental illness who happens to have this auditory deficit will have a difficult time detecting uh, my voice going up and down. So what that means is they'll have a hard time detecting the emotions I'm conveying with the up and down. And that also explains why folks with serious mental illness a lot of times have a really hard time with sarcasm because sarcasm like totally relies on tone, right? That's just two, those are just two of the auditory things. There's like all this other really interesting sensory stuff that goes on. I'm debating whether to, to, to give you some more. I don't know if you guys are interested, but uh, there's, um, I'm going to give you another one that's really interesting. And this could potentially blow your mind, actually, because it did mine. Um, before we perform any activity, so just reaching to my glass right here, taking it in my hand and, all right, before doing that, as I was doing it, as I was motor planning, there were all these firings going off in my head, sensory motor firings that told me that predicted how this was going to feel. And um, so what that does is it allows me to try to modulate, you know, my actual action. So as I'm reaching for it, my brain is already predicting everything that's going to happen. And then when I, as I do it, my, my, I'm getting feedback and it's coming back up to my brain and my brain is then changing uh, that prediction for next time because it's, it's detecting errors in my prediction. Right? So that's how you learn over time by doing, which is another reason why we need to make sure that we're always teaching people by doing. We're not relying, sim think about it. How many times do you try to tell somebody to do something with one of your clients, you're just telling them verbally. So you're, you're, you're relying on these auditory processes that are maybe uh, are problematic in the moment. And then you're not even showing the person uh, what, what, or having them do it or demonstrating it. 
you're, you're not uh, seizing on these, uh, the, these neural processes uh, that are predictive and um, that make you learn. Because every time you do an activity, your predictor neurons fire and you get, uh, uh, you get um, a response and you modify your prediction for next time. This improves performance. Since context changes all the time, everything changes all the time, you're constantly learning, you're constantly having to adjust your predictions because they're all based on your past experiences. And you know, your body changes, the environment changes, so it's never perfect. Folks with serious mental illness have um, a different process of prediction such that, uh, and it has to do with the brain waves again, but since my gross failure and being able to show this well, they also, there's another attenuation problem where there's not a big difference uh, between uh, the, pr the prediction and the response. And so a lot of times uh, folks, are, the way this translates functionally is that folks sometimes can't tell what is happening like if something happens in the environment they can't tell whether they they did it or uh, it came from an outside stimulus so that can have a serious impact on whether uh they think that something is being caused by them or uh is outside of them and in that case uh, that explains how some of the delusions happen more uh, importantly i think is in terms of learning it shows that there's a, there's a there could be potentially some challenges there in learning uh because the predictor uh the predictions are not modifying well in response to the response if that made sense. I hope I'm not losing you guys. Um, so it, long story short, it really emphasizes the fact that people need to learn by doing and they need repetition, repetition, repetition a lot. And they need not just uh, reliance on uh, their own sensory motor feedback, but they probably need you to help give them feedback on the performance so that they can contextualize what they're actually getting back. I hope I didn't lose you guys on that one because that's some pretty like um, wild stuff. Where it blows your mind, by the way, this is where it can blow your mind, uh, is uh, some of the cutting edge research is saying that our, 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 our emotions and how we feel in a moment, so our stress level, our allostasis, how regulating our internal situation is, is entirely based on those predictions. So this is where it blows your mind because those predictions are essentially simulations. So you could argue that the way you feel is based on a simulation and not what actually you're experiencing in the moment. I know this sounds crazy, right? Uh, but that feels really matrixy to me. But like, that's what the, um, the, uh, the, the science is actually starting to show now is that, uh, and it makes sense, you're, you're anticipating what's gonna happen and your, your emotional response is based on an anticipation, which is actually a simulation. So it's almost like your cognition and your, <laughs> your emotions are all simulations, which is, getting a little too heavy, I think, right? So um, maybe we should uh, wrap it up there. <laughs>